Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Objective, so that through life that everything is connected, but not in categories, cause that's the devil's story. Symbols of cannibalism ruin your vision. Your thoughts formulate in your mind with no precision. He paid a cruel price for what they call life. Dealt with it briefly, took him out that night. Some ask why I'ma say they hate the look in his eyes. Like a child, the ill omen, they want him crucified. The last on the battlefield, the last alive. Beside, they don't want the African to survive. Sabo, the son of Satan, was involved in the plot. Legalized the homicide, Yo, his soul going right. We attempted assassination of Mumia Jamal, they set him up. I come to find out, Tupac, they wet him up. Pharaoh, standing behind my fucking curtains with a double bow, rehearsing. 
ready for war now for certain. Uh, biological warfare suits. Black gas masks, black boots, half-ass niggas become troops. My guns are dope, warriors are booty now. Plenty thug niggas are fruity now. Freedom is that cold road seldom traveled. By the multitude, we need to dig through this gravel so we can cultivate this food. Motivate a few of you fools, regenerate the mood. Free ourselves from mental bondage, free ourselves from family feuds. And follow me through this prophecy. Building our colonies where our pillars and columns be. Bigger than the Coliseum, I call them like I see them. The devil does a devil dance, now they want to murder Mumia, take action, it's the only they chance. Me, son, grab a gun or two. Money gon' come to you. Stop rhyming about what white people done to you. Look, burn a blunt or two. Screw who you wanna screw. Do what you wanna do. And let sin win for you. Kill all that teacher shit. It's too much cheese to get. And if Jesus exists, just don't believe in it. Eat the bread of wickedness. Join the global Satanists. Give death row sentences <laughs> to black yeah. revolutionists. Now they will play in God just to feel the power. Not to justify that of you and I holding daggers up and letting you decide after passing information that's falsified stand behind a lie what does it cost to die what does it cost to live why do they specify these terms of why when they ain't the most high what they fear they will kill but the soul will never die Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, December 12, 2019. So I have been told this is our debut study session on Mumia Abu Jamal's live from death row first installment uh, book I'd said at, at the beginning of the year 12 months can get by you really fast if you are not being mindful but I'd said at the beginning of the year our 10 year anniversary uh, we should read live from death row this book is not in my top 10 but uh, Mumia has had a big uh, impact on my understanding of racism, white supremacy and influencing me to study and think about racism in a more uh, critical manner. Uh, I read this book. Wow. Before the cows even existed. I read, I read this book before I read Mr. Fuller. I read this book before I read uh, the ISIS papers. Uh, Just huge impact. I read some of his other works. He's such a prolific author. I just, I have so much respect uh, for Mumia Abu Jamal because he has been in greater confinement and was on death row for more than half of that time, but in greater confinement for basically 40 years and has been as consistently dedicated to combating white supremacy, racism, uh, both personally with his own case and trying to uh, extricate himself uh, and then regularly commenting on things that are happening all around the world. Uh, That's one of the reasons uh, that I'm always proud to include uh, some of his audio commentaries in our compensatory call in. I think people, if you've uh, listened to our Saturday broadcast for any length of time, you've probably heard uh, 10 or 30 of his commentaries over the years. And he talks about so many things. I think uh, Dr. Uh, Kamal Kambon, uh, one of his visits on the program, uh, he said that uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal is the best 
representation uh, of uh, a journalist, uh, just his commitment, the years of service, uh, certainly his coverage uh, of the move crisis in Philadelphia. I mean, it's so much to talk about, but I thought it was important to uh, get live from death row in. Uh, you can check out some of his other works as well, but that should definitely be a book that we cover in the book club. And since uh, it's such a cool topic, criminal justice reform, they call it so much has changed since live from death world was published. And this is such a unique book to read. This book was published in May of 1995. Do you know what a unique time that is that this book was published right in the middle of the OJ Simpson trial? In fact, O.J. Simpson will be mentioned in the segment of the reading this week, but it was written before the trial. So this is when O.J. is still cool. Beloved celebrity, not a raping white woman killing thug, (laughs) but uh, it was uh, right on the cusp. Uh, But it'll be great to read uh, the text. It is a collection of essays, so quite a uh, difference from some of what we have read previously but uh looking forward to it hopefully it'll be a fun read i think there'll even be some overlap from what we finished up with mr robeson's biography last week but anywho this is live from death row essays of mumia abu jamal uh we will get started this is our first audio segment on the context of white supremacy live from death row Mumia Abu-Jamal Introduction by John Edgar Wideman To Edith L. and William H. Two southern souls, one dimpled, high-cheek-boned, the color and aroma of sweet potatoes, the other short, muscular, coffee-colored, sans cream, embodiment of gruff love, aurored by cigar smoke, Phillies, who both joined the Great Migration North in search of that fabled land of equality, opportunity, and freedom for all. Up north, the northern tier of a Mason-Dixon line that marked the U.S.-Canadian border for some African Americans was a cold and harsh land that shattered some illusions only to breed others. For the children, it was home. For them, it was the promised land. To them, who scuffed and scraped to bring their brood to a new and better world. To their world, which might have been better. Acknowledgements Kudos supreme to J.E.W. Masterful in his introduction. Wow! Like Pharaoh Sanders with a pen instead of a sax. The late revered Dr. Huey P. Newton in his book Revolutionary Suicide once wrote of his admiration for the African axiom I am we, the natural notion that the tribe and the individual are one. In the spirit of that ancient wisdom, I wish to acknowledge my debt to the many members of the eternal tribe to the nameless ones who braved hell's storms to make that wretched middle passage from West Africa to the American Southlands to the blessed Reverend Nat Turner who danced to heaven's horn to Gabriel Prosser 
among those who blew it to Shaka and those who held the land at Island Wana to the spiritual sons and daughters of John Africa and the martyrs of the May 13th massacre to Pam Bert Rhea Mona Teresa Mo Mary Mella Swella and Franco to Puga Rhonda Jay Tiffany Malakad Bush all the seeds of wisdom to Rose and Pixie to Bev to all who wear the name Africa to all of them to Roz Marley and to all others who have sung for Babylon's fall to Elder Curtis Mayfield whose sweet rebel songs echoed across America and helped many a panther pass the day singing we're a winner and never let anybody say that y'all can't make it cause them people's mind is in your way to rads and rebels worldwide to America Gagan Information Press Partisan Defense Committee New African Network in support of political prisoners and prisoners of war Asada NAACP Legal Defense and Education Funds Demba Diop Hike Jurgen, Regine and Marlinta Suzanne and the German crew, the nameless ones who did the indispensable work that makes a movement grow and touch others, to Yatama, Corey, the three Lindas, two Thurstons and one Ragin, William Goldsby, Abdul, John, Bobby B, John and Jenny Black, two from the same fire, Fred Horseman, Shep, Yuri and Jamila to the good bloods and folks toiling still in the bowels of Babylon to Dr. Matulu Shakur, Sundiata Akoli, Geronimo Jijaga Pratt, Mazil Kazi to PPS and the Black Cultural Workshops crew, Kojo, Emery, Ghana, Leonard Peltier to Rochelle Maggi sole survivor of the Marin County Courthouse massacre acquitted by the jury but damned by the state in California dungeons since 1971 and in other California gulags for at least 20 years before that to Ray Luke Lavoisier, Larry Giddings to Stephen Luther Evans a jailhouse lawyer extraordinaire who opened the door for countless dudes but who had death slammed the door before he could take that long walk to freedom to the lawyers outside who struggled to help me join them to Leonard I. Winglass, Esquire, Stephen Hawkins, NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, Dan Williams, to Rachel, the reminder, Wolkenstein, and Jonathan Piper, Associate Counsel, to Adwa Adiertoro, National Conference of Black Lawyers, Jack Reardon and Ashanti Shimaringa, lawyers of the new age, to all behind Babylon's walls, to Dell, China, Phil, Ning, Janet, Ed, Mike, Deb, and Chuck, soldiers and ministers of John Africa's revolution who are doing a century in Pennsylvania's hellholes for refusing to betray their faith in the teachings despite their innocence who are prisoners of a political order bent on their destruction on August 8, 1978, May 13, 1985, and even this very day. To Whoopi, Danny Glover, the dynamic duo of Ozzie Davis and Ruby D, artists who have evoked imagery of a progressive 
ethos and who have dared to breach the barriers between art and life like Ed Asner and Mike Farrell to Alahai by Conti to Griots known and unknown Dell Jones Lynn Washington Father Paul Washington Cody Anderson Kamau Ja Free Eye Terry Bison Doc aka Dr. Alan Berkman ex-political prisoner who did time with me in Holmesburg Dungeon Judy Douglas Joe Nina Ambron Askia Muhammad to former fellow Panther turned Grio Kilu Niasha because freedom is a constant struggle Nguji Wa Thiongo Dr. Chinsole Dr. Hussein Abdiali Bulhan Dr. Ernest P. King Dr. Francis Cress Welsing Dr. Francis Frenon to one who escaped the slave coffle and became two Daruba and Tanakil to men and women who are no longer panthers but are still rumbling Sophia Bakari Alston, the late Nat Shanks, Captain Reggie Shell, Emery Douglas, Harold Jameson, Rosemary Mealy, Linda Richardson, and those who never apologized for wearing the black beret, to Francis Golden, who reached into the storm and pulled out this tome, to Noel Hanrahan, who brought in the deadliest of weapons behind the walls, a tape recorder, to Jane and Alexander, to my brothers across this country, to the many good folks who remain unnamed but not unknown, to the vast extended family that is the brood of Edith, Keith, Lydia, Basil, Ali, Wayne, William, and their, her, growing progeny, Fluten Juice, Jaleel, Jamal, Tifa, Nibianta, Jabari, Wayne, and Mazimu, to Marilyn and Habiba, who fed that brood with their love. And lastly, but not leastly, to my wife, Madia, Wadia, Jamal, and the entire Jamal clan, to all my Ibans and Ventas, gifts from the divine source who revealed the face of love in human form. Preface Don't tell me about the valley of the shadow of death. I live there in south-central Pennsylvania's Huntington County, a 100-year-old prison stands, its gothic towers projecting an air of foreboding, evoking a gloomy mood of the Dark Ages. I and some 78 other men spend about 22 hours a day in 6-by-10-foot cells. The additional two hours may be spent outdoors in a chain-leak fenced box ringed by concertina razor wire under the gaze of gun turrets welcome to pennsylvania's death row i am a bit stunned several years ago the pennsylvania supreme court affirmed my conviction and sentence of death by a vote of four justices three did not participate as a black journalist who was a black panther way back in my young teens i've often studied america's long history of legal lynchings of Africans. I remember a front page of the Black Panther newspaper bearing the quote, a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect, attributed to U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Taney of the infamous Dred Scott case where America's highest court held that neither Africans nor their free descendants 
are entitled to the rights of the Constitution. Deep, huh? It's true. Perhaps I'm naive. Maybe I'm just stupid. But I thought the law would be followed in my case and the conviction reversed. Really. Even in the face of the brutal Philadelphia move massacre of May 13, 1985, that led to Ramona Africa's frame-up, Eleanor Bumpers, Michael Stewart, Clement Lloyd, Alan Blanchard, and countless other police slaughters of blacks from New York to Miami, with impunity, my faith remained. Even in the face of this relentless wave of anti-black state terror, I thought my appeals would be successful. I still harbored a belief in U.S. law and the realization that my appeal had been denied was a shocker. I could understand intellectually that American courts are reservoirs of racist sentiment and have historically been hostile to black defendants. But a lifetime of propaganda about American justice is hard to shrug off. I need but look across the nation where, as of December 1994, blacks constituted some 40% of men on death row. Or across Pennsylvania where, as of December 1994, 111 of 184 men on death row, over 60% are black, to see the truth a truth hidden under black robes and promise of equal rights. Blacks constitute just over 9% of Pennsylvania's population and just under 11% of America's. As I said, it's hard to shrug off, but maybe we can do it together. How? Try out this quote. I saw in a 1982 law book by a prominent Philadelphia lawyer named David carries. Law is simply politics by other means. Such a line goes far to explain how courts really function, whether today or 138 years ago in the Scott case. It ain't about law. It's about politics by other means. Now ain't that the truth? I continue to fight against this unjust sentence and conviction. Perhaps we can shrug off and shred some of the dangerous myths laid on our minds like a second skin, such as the right to a fair and impartial jury of our peers, the right to represent oneself, the right to a fair trial, even. They're not rights, they're privileges of the powerful and rich. For the powerless and the poor, they are chimera that vanish once one reaches out to claim them as something real or substantial. Don't expect the media networks to tell you, for they can't, because of the incestuousness between the media and the government and big business, which they both serve. I can. Even if I must do so from the valley of the shadow of death, I will. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal, December 1994. Introduction John Edgar Weidman 
recalling the horrors of African-American history, accepting the challenges of our history presently places on us is like acknowledging a difficult, unpleasant duty or debt that's been hanging over our heads a very long time, an obligation that we know in our hearts we must deal with, but that we keep putting off and evading as if one day procrastination will make the burden, the obligation we must undertake, disappear. Mumia Abu-Jamal forces us to confront the burden of our history. In one of his columns from Death Row, he quotes at length an 1857 ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court. The issue being determined by the court is whether the descendants of slaves, when they shall be emancipated, are full citizens of the United States. Chief Justice Roger Taney states, We think they are not, and that they were not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges of the United States. A perpetual and impossible barrier was intended to be erected between the white race and the one which they had reduced to slavery and governed as subjects with absolute and despotic power and which they then looked upon as so below them in the scale of created beings that intermarriages between white persons and negroes or mulattoes were regarded as unnatural and immoral and punished as crimes. Justice Taney, speaking for the court, confirms the judgment of his ancestors and articulates an attitude prevailing to this very day. Mumia points out that Thurgood Marshall, the first person of African descent appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, admitted just hours after his resignation from the court that I'm still not free. In another essay, Mumia calls our attention to Nelson Mandela. Released after 27 years in South Africa's jails as a political prisoner, Mandela, honored, celebrated as a hero, leader, and liberator of his people, universally acknowledged to be the most powerful man in his country, its best hope for peace, possibly its next president, still didn't possess the right to vote. Mumia Abu-Jamal's writing insists on these kinds of gut checks, reality checks. He reminds us that to move clearly in the present, we must understand the burden of our past. Situated as he is in prison, a prison inside a prison actually, since he's confined on death row, Mumia Abu-Jamal's day-to-day life would seem to share little with ours out here in the so-called free world. Then again, if we think a little deeper, we might ask ourselves, who isn't on death row? Perhaps one measure of humanity is our persistence in the business of attempting to construct a meaningful life in spite of the sentence of death hanging over our heads every instant of our time on earth. Although we can't avoid our inevitable mortality, we don't need to cower in a corner waiting for annihilation. Neither should we allow the seemingly overwhelming evil news of the day to freeze us in our tracks, nor let it become an excuse for doing nothing, for denial and avoidance, for hiding behind imaginary walls and pretending nothing can harm us. 
Alternatives exist. Struggle exists. Struggle to connect, to imagine ourselves better, to imagine a better world, to take responsibility step by step, day by day, for changing the little things we can control, refusing to accept the large things that appear out of control. The life and the essays of Mumia Abu-Jamal provide us with models for struggle. In 1981, to connect with my younger brother who was serving a life term without parole in a Pennsylvania prison, I wrote a book with him called Brothers and Keepers. In my research for the book, I discovered a chilling fact. My country, the United States of America, ranked third among the nations of the world in the percentage of its citizens it imprisoned. Only Russia and South Africa surpassed us. Who would have guessed that 13 years later, the powerful governments of two of the top three incarcerating nations would have been overturned by internal revolutions? We're number one now. And in spite of the warning implicit in the fate of governments that choose repression over reform, we're building more prisons as fast as we can. The facile notion of incarceration as a cure for social, economic, and political problems has usurped the current national discussion of these issues. As I traveled from city to city on a book tour last fall, the dominant issue dramatized in TV campaign ads coast to coast was which candidate is tougher on crime. During the same tour, a hot story in national and local newspapers on TV news, talk shows, and radio call-ins was the IQ controversy occasioned by the publication of several books claiming that the innate intelligence of blacks was lower than that of whites. Why such widespread excited coverage of this hoary topic? That some people believe black folk are born inferior to whites and thus genetically determined to occupy the lowest rung of society certainly isn't news. Neither is blaming the victim of oppression a strategy with a history at least as ancient as Europe's slave trading in Africa. I recall sitting on college admission committees 30 years ago and hearing many of those who are voicing the idea of black mental inferiority today singing the same song then to rationalize underrepresentation of African Americans in higher education. So the fact that some experts continue to believe in innate black inferiority or proclaim it without truly believing since they must know that the basic terms in the debate race and intelligence are problematic at best malicious fictions at worst and know a mountain of tables graphs statistics and experiments can neither affirm nor deny premises and assumptions themselves imprecise and untestable how many angels can fit on the head of a pin is not news rather the IQ controversy is an ominous sign of misinformation and repression going hand in hand. 
exterminating Jews becomes easier if you're able to provide sound scientific reasons for pogroms. Postulating a biologically determined IQ deficit in blacks is more than malicious mischief. It is a transparent ploy to justify and erase from the national consciousness 30 years of backsliding from the promise of equality exacted by the civil rights movement of the 1960s. For African Americans, the backsliding has created a slightly larger black middle class on one hand and on the other a growing underclass of people of color trapped on the bottom rung of an economic ladder without any more rungs. For white Americans, reneging on the promise of equality has engendered class stratification and polarization just as severe as among blacks. On the bottom, the stagnant poverty of unemployment, welfare, poor education, and transience infect more and more of those who once considered themselves working people with dignity and aspirations. In the middle of rapidly shrinking majority beset by fear, trembling, and anger, they know they are walking a tightrope away from unforgiving poverty toward a mirage of boundless wealth that confers immunity from harder times. A tightrope they also know in their hearts leads nowhere unless they hit the lottery, except to more stressful, precarious steps along the razor's edge or a sudden precipitous fall. Finally, at the top stands a tiny minority whose wealth is a wall protecting them from the chaos of social instability, a wall that is both a reaction to the moral chaos of inequality and dependent on it. We face a social landscape with more, or at least as much, need for radical change than we faced in the 1960s, an era that produced flawed, though it was, by lack of follow-through, a mighty impulse toward change. Yet today, the opposite impulse drives us. Walls separating Americans by race, gender, class, and region are being justified and celebrated, but not in a spirit that welcomes diversity or seeks ultimate unity through mutual respect and reconciliation. Prison walls are being proposed as a final solution. They symbolize our short-sightedness, our fear of the real problems caging us all. The pity is how blindly, enthusiastically we applaud those who are constructing the walls dooming us. Mumia Abu-Jamal's voice is considered dangerous and subversive and thus is censored from national public radio to name just one influential medium. Many books about black people, including a slew of briskly selling biographies and autobiographies from Oprah to OJ to Maya Angelou, are on the stands. What sets Mumia's story apart as so threatening? It is useful to remember that the slave narrative and its progeny, the countless up-from-the-depths biographies and autobiographies of black people that repeat the form and assumptions of the slave narrative, have always been bestsellers. They encapsulate one of the master plots Americans have found acceptable for black lives. 
These neo-slave narratives carry a message the majority of people wealthy enough to purchase books wish to hear. The message consists of a basic deep structure repeated in a seemingly endless variety of packages and voices. The slave narratives of the 1800s posited and then worked themselves out in a bifurcated either-or world. The action of the story concerns moving from one world to another. The actor is a single individual, a featured star, and we watch and listen as this protagonist undergoes his or her rite of passage, south to north, rural to urban, black environment, plantation, to white environment, everywhere including the language in which the narrator converses with the reader. Silence to literacy are some of the classic crossovers accomplished by the protagonists of such fables. If you punch in modern variants of these dichotomies, ghetto to middle class, ignorance to education, unskilled to professional, despised gangster to enlightened spokesperson, you can see how persistent and malleable the formula is. The formula for the neo-slave narrative sells because it is simple, because it accepts and maintains the categories, black-white for instance, of the status quo, because it is about individuals, not groups, crossing boundaries, because it comforts and consoles those in power and offers a ray of hope to the powerless. Although the existing social arrangements may allow the horrors of plantations, ghettos, and prisons to exist, the narratives tell us these arrangements also allow room for some to escape. Thus, the arrangements are not absolutely evil. No one is absolutely guilty, nor are the oppressed, slave, prisoner, ghetto inhabitant, absolutely guiltless. If some overcome, why don't others? Vicarious identification with the narrator's harrowing adventures, particularly if the tale is told in first person, I permits readers to have their cake and eat it too. They experience the chill and thrill of being an outsider. In the safety of an armchair, readers can root for the crafty slave as the slave pits himself against an outrageously evil system that legitimizes human bondage. Readers can ignore for a charmed moment their reliance on the same system to pay for the book, The Armchair. The neo-slave narratives thus serve the ambivalent function of their ancestors. The fate of one black individual is foregrounded, removed from the network of systemic relationships connecting, defining, determining, undermining all American lives. This manner of viewing black lives at best ignores, at worst reinforces, an apartheid status quo. Divisive categories that structure the world of the narratives slave-free, black-white, underclass-middle-class, female-male are not interrogated. The idea of a collective, intertwined fate recedes. The mechanisms of class, race, and gender we have inherited are perpetuated ironically by a genre purporting to illustrate the possibility of breaking barriers and transcending the conditions into which one is born. 
Mumia Abu-Jamal's essays, Question Matters, Left Untouched by Most of the Popular Stories of Black Lives, Decorating Bookstores Today, and Therein Lies Much of the Power, the Urgency of His Writing. His essays are important as departure and corrective. He examines the place where he is, prison, his status, prisoner, black man, but refuses to accept the notion of difference and separation these labels project. Although he yearns for freedom, demands freedom, he does not identify freedom with release from prison, does not confuse freedom with what his jailers can give or take away, does not restrict the concept of freedom to the world beyond the bars his jailers enter from each day. Although dedicated to personal liberation, he envisions that liberation as partially dependent on the collective fate of black people. He doesn't split his world down the middle to conform to the divided world prison enforces. He expresses the necessity of connection, relinquishing to no person or group the power to define him. His destiny, his manhood, is not attached to some desperate one-way urge to cross over to a region controlled or possessed by others. What he is, who he can become, results from his daily struggle to construct an identity wherever his circumstances place him. Isn't one of the lessons of African-American culture the reality of an unseen world below above around what is visible our history offers witness to the fact that our living our art and our spirits can prosper in the face of the most extreme physical deprivation aren't mumia abu jamal's words reaching us now in spite of steel bars and a death sentence another instance of our capacity to keep on keeping on the first truth Mumia tells us is that he ain't dead yet. And although his voice is vital and strong, he assures us it ain't because nobody ain't trying to kill him and shut him up. In fact, just the opposite is true. The power of his voice is rooted in his defiance of those determined to silence him. Magically, Mumia's words are clarified and purified by the toxic strata of resistance through which they must penetrate to reach us like the blues like jazz remember the fairy tale about the emperor's new clothes how a kid blurts out he's naked as the emperor struts past decked out in his illusory splendor whatever happened to the kid who spoiled the emperor's show consider what has happened to black men Martin, Malcolm, Mandela, who have shouted out, he's naked. If the fairy tale were set in an American city today and the child cast as a black boy, we know he'd be shot or locked up or both. Nobody wants to hear the bad news, the truth exposing the empire's self-delusions, especially those who profit most from the delusions. Chinua Achebe, the great Nigerian novelist, teaches us that the poet and the king must never become too friendly because the poet's job is to bear to the people unglad tidings 
the king would just as soon nobody hears. The best slave narratives and prison narratives have always asked profound questions implicitly and explicitly about the meaning of a life. Part of the work of blues, jazz, our best artistic endeavors is, thank you, Mr. Ellison, to reveal the chaos which lives within the pattern of our certainties. In a new world where African people were transported to labor, die, and disappear, we've needed unbound voices to reformulate our destiny. Voices refusing to be ensnared by somebody else's terms. We've developed the knack of finding such voices in the oddest, darkest, most unforeseen places. A chorus of them exists in great time, the seamless medium uniting past, present, and future. The voices are always there if we discipline ourselves to pick them out, listen to them, to ourselves, to the best we've managed to write and say and dance and paint and sing. African-American culture, in spite of the weight, the assaults it has endured, may contain a key to our nation's survival, a key not found simply in the goal of material prosperity, but in the force of spirit, will, communal interdependence. Because he tells the truth, Mumia Abu-Jamal's voice can help us tear down walls, prison walls, the walls we hide behind to deny and refuse the burden of our history. Part 1. Life on Death Row Teetering on the Brink Between Life and Death For there to be equivalence, the death penalty would have to punish a criminal who had warned his victim of the date at which he would inflict a horrible death on him and who, from that moment onward, had confined him at his mercy for months. Such a monster is not encountered in private life. Albert Camus Yard in. The last yard of the day is finally called. Capitals, fourth, fifth, and sixth tier. Yard up. The corpulent correctional officer bellows his rural accent alien to the urban ear. One by one, cells are unlocked for the daily trek from cell to cage. Each man is pat-searched by guards armed with batons and then scanned by a metal detector. Once the inmates are encaged, the midsummer sky rumbles, its dark clouds swell, pregnant with power and water. A bespeckled white shirt turns his pale face skyward, examining nature's quickening portent. The rumbles grow louder as drops of rain sail earthward, splattering steel, brick, and human. 
yard in. The white shirt yells, sparking murmurs of resentment among the men. Yard in? Shit, man, we just got out here. The guards adopt a cajoling rather than threatening attitude. Come on, fellas. Yard in, yard in. You know we can't leave yins out here when it gets a thundering and lightning. Oh, why not? Y'all afraid we gonna get ourselves electrocuted? A prisoner asks. Ain't that a bitch? Another adds. They must be afraid that if we do get electrocuted by lightning, they won't have no jobs and won't get paid. A few guffaws and the trail from cage to cell thickens. Although usually two hours long, today's yard barely lasts ten minutes for fear that those condemned to death by the state may perish instead by fate. For approximately 2,400 people locked in state and federal prisons, life is unlike that in any other institution. These are America's condemned who bear a stigma far worse than prisoner. These are America's death row residents, men and women who walk the razor's edge between half-life and certain death in 34 states or under the jurisdiction of the United States. The largest death row stands in Texas, 324 people, 120 African Americans, 144 whites, 52 Hispanics, 4 Native Americans, and 4 Asian Americans. The smallest are in Connecticut, 2 whites. New Mexico, 1 Native American, 1 white, and Wyoming, 2 whites. You will find a blacker world on death row than anywhere else. African Americans, a mere 11% of the national population, compose about 40% of the death row population. There, too, you will find this writer. Control. It is from Pennsylvania's largest death row at the State Correctional Institute at Huntington in rural south-central Pennsylvania that I write. In the Commonwealth, I am but one of 123 persons who await death. I have lived in this barren domain of death since the summer of 1983. For several years now, I have been assigned D.C., disciplinary custody status for daring to abide by my faith, the teachings of John Africa, and in particular for refusing to cut my hair. For this, I have been denied family phone calls and on occasions I have been shackled for refusing to violate my beliefs. Life here oscillates between the banal and the bizarre. Unlike other prisoners, Death row inmates are not doing time. Freedom does not shine at the end of the tunnel. Rather, the end of the tunnel brings extinction. Thus, for many here, there is no hope. As in any massive quasi-military organization, reality on the row is regimented by rule and regulation. As against any regime imposed on human personality, there is resistance, but far less than one might expect. 
for the most part, death row prisoners are the best behaved and least disruptive of all inmates. It is also true, however, that we have little opportunity to be otherwise, given that many death units operate on the 22 plus 2 system. 22 hours locked in cell, followed by 2 hours of recreation out of cell. Outdoor recreation takes place in a cage ringed with double-edged razor wire, the dog pen. All death rows share a central goal, human storage. In an austere world in which condemned prisoners are treated as bodies kept alive to be killed. Pennsylvania's death row regime is among America's most restrictive, rivaling the infamous San Quentin death unit for the intensity and duration of restriction. A few states allow four, six, or even eight hours out of cell, prison employment, or even access to educational programs. Not so in the Keystone State. Here, one has little or no psychological life. Here, many escape death's omnipresent specter only by way of common diversions, television, radio, or sports. TVs are allowed, but not typewriters. One's energies may be expended freely on entertainment, but a tool essential for one's liberation through judicial process is deemed a security risk. One inmate more interested in his life than his entertainment argued forcefully with prison administrators for permission to buy a non-impact, non-metallic, battery-operated typewriter. Predictably, permission was denied for security reasons. Well, what y'all consider a 13-inch piece of glass? The prisoner asked. Ain't that a security risk? Where do you think you'll get that from? The prison official demanded. From my TV. Request for typewriter denied. TV is more than a powerful diversion from a terrible fate. It is a psychic club used to threaten those who dare resist the dehumanizing isolation of life on the row. To be found guilty of an institutional infraction means that one must relinquish TV. After months or years, of non-contact visits, few phone calls, and ever-decreasing communication with one's family and others, many inmates use TV as an umbilical cord, a psychological connection to the world they have lost. They depend on it in the way that lonely people turn to TV for the illusion of companionship and they dread separation from it. For many, Loss of TV is too high a price to pay for any show of resistance. Humiliation Visits are an exercise in humiliation. In Pennsylvania, as in many other death states, non-contact visits are the rule. It is not just a security rule, it is a policy and structure that attempts to sever emotional connection by denying physical connection between the visitor 
and the inmate. Visits are conducted in a closed room, roughly 80 square feet in size. The prisoner is handcuffed and separated by a partition of shatterproof glass, steel trim, and wire mesh. What visitors do not see prior to the visit is a horrifying spectacle, the body cavity strip search. Once the prisoner is naked, the visiting room guard spits out a familiar cadence. Open your mouth, stick out your tongue, you wear any dentures, let me see both sides of your hands, pull your foreskin back, lift your sack, turn around, bend over, spread your cheeks, bottom of your feet, get dressed. Several prisoners have protested to the administration that such searches are unreasonable, arguing that body cavity strip searches before and after non-contact visits cannot be justified. Either allow contact visits, they argue, or halt the body cavity strip searches. But prison officials have responded to this proposal as they have to repeated calls by the condemned for allowance of typewriters. Refusal due to security risk. For the visitor, too, such visits are deeply disturbing. In Rim v. Malcolm, the often cited case on prison conditions in New York, Judge Lasker quoted expert testimony from Carl Menninger, the late psychiatrist who described non-contact visiting as the most unpleasant and most disturbing detail in the whole prison and a practice that constitutes a violation of ordinary principles of humanity. Dr. Menninger stated, it's such a painful sight that I don't stay but a minute or two as a rule. It's a painful thing. I feel so sorry for them, so ashamed of myself that I get out of the room. The ultimate effect of non-contact visits is to weaken and finally to sever family ties. Through this policy and practice, the state skillfully and intentionally denies those it condemns a fundamental element and expression of humanity, that of touch and physical contact, and thereby slowly erodes family ties already made tenuous by the distance between home and prison. Thus, prisoners are as isolated psychologically as they are temporally and spatially. By state action, they become dead to those who know and love them and therefore dead to themselves. For who are people but for their relations and relationships? Hurled by judicial decree into this netherworld of despair, forcefully separated from relationships overcome by the dual shame of their station and the circumstances of the crime that led them to death's door, a few succumb to the shady release of suicide. Some fight Sisyphean battles, struggling to prove their innocence and reverse unjust convictions. Others live as they are treated as shadows of their former selves in a pantomime of life, human husks. To such men and women, the actual execution is a fait accompli 
a formality already accomplished in spirit where the state concludes its premeditated drama by putting the dead to death a second time. Politics and justice of death. Although it might be said fairly that many people both in and outside of prison are utterly uninformed as to the workings of the U.S. Supreme Court, some among those on death row watch the court with acute attention. For them, the sudden resignation of Justice William J. Brennan Jr. comes as crushing news after a season of sorrow. The recent spate of losses suffered by capital litigators spells all but certain doom for those who continue to petition the present court for legal relief. Where the issue of the death penalty is concerned, law follows politics and conservatives won the socio-political battles of the 1980s on the basis of an agenda that included a ringing endorsement of capital punishment. The venerated principle of stare desis following rules of previous judicial decisions meant little in the politically charged judicial arena. Statistical methodology and scientific and sociological studies, once valued tools for challenging state practice, now serve as meaningless academic exercises. McCleskey v. Kemp, 1987, was the clincher. The Supreme Court majority, Justice Powell, writing assumed the validity of the so-called Baldus study, which presented mounds of powerful statistical data demonstrating gross racial disparity in Georgia's death penalty tallies, but rejected the study's clear implications. Justice Brennan's dissent telescoped the Baldus study's meaning. Defendants charged with killing whites are 4.3 times more likely to be sentenced to die than defendants charged with killing blacks. Six of every 11 defendants convicted of killing a white would not have received a death sentence had their victim been black. Thus, the study showed that there was a significant chance that race would play a prominent role in determining if a defendant lived or died. The majority's permabulations to its eventual rejection of that which it could hardly deny that the race of the victim is a primary factor in determining whether a defendant lives or dies proved the potency of the old adage offered by the satirical character Mr. Dooley who shrewdly observed no matter whether the Constitution follows the flag or not, the Supreme Court follows the election returns. McCleskey's claim, based on sophisticated statistical and multiple regression analysis, but trust by our understanding of history and human experience, was not disproved by the McCleskey Court. Rather, it was rejected out of fear. In rejecting the conclusion that the facts established an unconstitutional infirmity, Justice Powell noted with alarm that McCleskey's claim, taken to its logical conclusion, throws into serious question the principles that underlie our entire criminal justice system. Precisely because McCleskey dared question the fundamental fairness of the entire system, 
his claims were answered with rejection. Delbert Tibbs, an African-American divinity student, once found himself tossed in with death row prisoners in Florida. Convicted by an all-white jury in 1974 for rape and related murder, he spent three harrowing years in death's shadow before appellate reversal. In speaking about his jury, he observed, Peer, one of equal rank, one among equals. I knew the definition of that word, and there was nothing remotely akin to this meaning existing between me and these seven hard-eyed white men and five coal-eyed white women who made up this jury of my peers. I knew that any peerage that they comprised, as indeed they did comprise such a thing, totally excluded me at least in their eyes. Peers indeed. I'm sure that in the eyes of that jury, I was not just another human being. Oh no, I was dangerous because darker, I didn't belong. On the McCleskey decision, Tibbs noted, apparently that justice of the United States writing for the majority, thinks that the United States is not two separate societies, one black and one white, and quite unequal. Justice is not meted out without regard to race, sex, economics, or previous condition of servitude. That justice was speaking as if there were no civil war and no chattel slavery. He spoke as if there were no history of lynchings, as if there were no Dred Scott decision, no Medgar Evers, Little Rock, nor Bombingham. Memphis didn't happen in that America. What does happen in this America is the cheapening of black life and the placing of a premium on white life. As Justice Brennan's eloquent dissent in McCleskey argues, the fact that this practice may be customary does not make it constitutional. To do justice, one must consistently battle, in Brennan's words, a fear of too much justice. Finding that fear firmly entrenched, he framed his arguments not merely as counters to positions with which he passionately disagreed, but also as warnings for the future, a day not dawned. It is tempting to pretend that minorities on death row share a fate in no way connected to our own, that our treatment of them sounds no echoes beyond the chambers in which they die. Such an illusion is ultimately corrosive, for the reverberations of injustice are not so easily confined. The court's decision today will not change what attorneys in Georgia tell other Warren McCleskeys about their chances of execution. Nothing will soften the harsh message they must convey, nor alter the prospect that race undoubtedly will continue to be a topic of discussion. McCleskey's evidence will not have obtained judicial acceptance, but that will not affect what is said on death row.
However, many criticisms of today's decision may be rendered. These painful conversations will serve as the most eloquent dissents of all. Ironically, perhaps, the eloquent dissents of pro se court watchers are commonly delivered in the winning or losing of a bet. Inmates on the row often wager with one another on the outcome of judicial decisions. But as the real stakes riding on any given outcome are high, objective predictions are rarely possible. By viewing every decision through the prism of politics, I never lost a bet, even in cases where jailhouse lawyers claimed to have the law on their side. There is, of course, no satisfaction in such victories. Every bet won has been a case lost. Every case lost a step closer to death. My predictions, based on political wins rather than law, have earned me the enmity of those jailhouse lawyers who continue to place faith in legal precedents and principles despite their growing pile of lost wagers. Context of white supremacy. That is our first audio segment. We are still very early in the book. Uh, we should be picking up. Uh, I think there are a few different uh, editions of this text because the uh, version that I have, it has, let me see. Is this a new preface? Or I still think there doesn't say new preface, but I do think there are uh, different printings of this text. So the book that I have, we will be picking up on page 19. It's subtitled Death March and Lessons Unlearned. That's what we'll be picking up at. Uh, I reckon it could be 19, teetering on the brink between life and death. That's what we'll start our second audio segment. Anyway, context of white supremacy, Mumia Abu-Jamal, <clears throat> live from death row. Again, uh, I just thought it was important to make sure we get this in the archives. Uh, it. Mumia's had a, a big influence. He's played pretty regularly on the compensatory call-in. Uh, we include a segment uh, where he's addressing, generally, it'll be a very current uh, issue, something that's happening right now. Uh, again, I have always been uh, extremely impressed uh, that even from greater, not just greater confinement, let's not, you know, pussyfoot, uh, from death row for a big chunk uh, of the last 40 years almost uh, and he is still right on it talking about things that are current and what's happening all over the world just super super uh, impressive or as impressive as a victim of white supremacy can be number to dial 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate that number again 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate already got some of that overlap Ozzy D uh, already Ozzy Davis excuse me I was thinking Ruby D Ozzy Davis Ruby D I 
can't say one without the other uh, but already had some overlap I said that from what we just ended with biography on Paul Robeson last week folks have thoughts uh, commentary uh, about the first portion of the reading again Mumia has written a number of books which is also equally impressive because he's done all this writing uh, from great <laughs> mostly from death row uh, but certainly greater confinement death blossoms I read that uh, all things considered uh, all things censored excuse me all things censored he has a, a even a newer text I have to look back on his site to get the title but prolific author journalist a convicted murderer long list of titles victim of white supremacy Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, we'll get to the phone lines I would encourage folks to kind of be mindful because he I believe may be getting uh, at least a new case a new inquiry uh, he had been submitting you know fighting to get an appeal uh, on various grounds in his case so I think that may be happening he, he may have made a little bit of progress over the last few months I know that was another guiding force in wanting to read this text at some point as well anywho folks who dialed in if you have uh, comments to share uh, let's see Thomas in New York line should be open if you have comments questions feel free good evening gosh good evening um leaving to all the callers yeah, I just had two comments about the reading so far. Um, well, I don't think I heard him say Sue Africa. I wrote that down. I was like, ooh, I was waiting for that name. I don't think I heard you read that name. Um, so I was happy about that. And um, the stats about blacks on death row for killing whites um, that um, would not be there if they had killed another black person. I think that was... Um, pretty astonishing, astounding, you know, statistics. I think it was six out of 11 blacks on death row were there for killing a white person. Um, however, um, it brought me to, you know, you know that little clip you play, uh, Black Lives Cost Less, you know, that, that was like a statistic that, boom, that blew that one out the water. Metaphor, it's not Saturday. Um, but other than that, Gus, I didn't have um, too many more comments. Oh, question. Now, I'm not... I'm, and, you know, forgive me, uh, I'm a victim, but I never really um, looked at Mamiya's case as something that, you know, caught my attention that I needed to, you know, look at as just, you know, his brother or death. Well, I, I wasn't sure if, um, if if it's a consensus that he did not commit this crime or not. Like, uh, uh, is, is this something, is he being... Um, Framed, do you think us? I'm, I'm not sure the, the circumstances behind the crime, and I was thinking that he was going to be talking about that in this book. Uh, you will be a tad disappointed. That is not a major focus of the book. Um, he, you know, talks about. Uh, I, it's been a while since I've read it, but I think if memory serves, I guess I could look at the chapters here. If memory serves. Uh, he spends more time on the move case, Sue Africa and all, than his own case. Let me look at the chapters again to be sure. But while I'm looking at the chapters, <clears throat> uh, it certainly is not a consensus. Uh, the Blue Lives Matter folks <clears throat> uh, certainly do not think that Mumia is innocent or was railroaded or, you know, anything of the like. Uh, I think depending on who you talk to, certainly black people, uh, his supporters, he named a lot of them at the beginning, 
the evidence is suspicious. Uh, this happened at an era uh, in the early 1980s where he had already been doing a lot of work uh, as a journalist covering the move situation. You'd have to put a lot of things in context for Pro system of white supremacy and then Philadelphia specifically, specifically, which is a very important city uh, where a lot of things like the move situation had been happening and Mumia, uh, Mumia as a journalist in Philadelphia had been covering uh, a lot of this material, uh, much like Paul Robeson. You have somebody who's talking about these things on a global issue, talking about racism, white supremacy, had been a member of the Black Panther Party. So he had connections uh, with a lot of black people uh, across the country. He's quoting from Dr. Newton, eloquent, intelligent, can explain all of this. Uh, In my view, uh, I think this would just be another easy illustration of, you know, black identity. That's the hashtag that I used. But obviously, that's going to depend on uh, who you speak to. But again. He, I believe, I just looked at the article today, he might be getting a new trial. So, you know, it might be a growing consensus that, yeah, they did not do the correct thing uh, with Mumia Abu-Jamal and long, ugly story. But yeah, I do not think he's going to get into a lot of that uh, detail here. And in fact, most of his books that I recall, there's a documentary on him. Most of his books that I remember don't deal a lot with his personal case. They deal with like the move situation, racism in general. Uh, the death row situation in general, the statistics you heard about, you know, being more likely to be there if you kill a white person. Fourth uh, of July, Huey P. Newton. It's like a lot of his audio commentaries that I play on the weekends. Most of those don't deal with his case. Most of them, he's talking about other things. Yeah, I'm looking at the the chapter titles. Uh, I think you'll be. He talks about Rodney King. <laughs> he's talking about all kinds of things. Um, yeah. Got you. Gotcha. Oh, when he was talking about um, the treatment on death row, you know, um, how people, that television does, the television, uh, people are uh, addicted to the television. They, that's the one thing they're not giving up. So, therefore, it quills any um, uprising due to the misconduct. You have to take a cavity search to have a non-physical visit. Like, you know, I haven't been around anybody but you. <laughs> you know, like, it's just Man, um, you know, system of white supremacy, area law, you know, terrible. Um, but um, just hearing some of those things was um, pretty eye-opening, uh, especially, once again, that statistic. And, and um, surprisingly, Texas has the most prisoners on death row. I would have thought, and I've heard that my, my whole life, but, you know, just looking at the, the amount of people, you would think California would lead the way, but California doesn't have a lot of black people, you know, um, I think only 2 million in the whole state, a little over 2 million. There's Texas. I mean, forget about it. They got plenty. So, um, I'll be my line. Gosh, thank you. Much obliged Thomas in New York. <clears throat> if other folks are not informed uh, about all the details on Mumia's case, uh, this happened early eighties. I'm sure there's some folks, uh, who were not alive when all this happened. So uh, go back. There's a lot of information, like there's a documentary and a lot of info and probably more details to come, uh, especially if this ends up, you know, there being a new trial and everything like, oh man, I don't know if it would be OJ Simpson, but I mean, you would have a pretty notorious cop killer, former black Panther party member. I mean, this would be kind of like Asada Shakur, like, oh man, <laughs> like, uh, oh man, uh, yeah, get uh, be familiar, and definitely if we have listeners, if you live in Pennsylvania, like a local history, 
you should definitely be well versed on uh, Mumia Abu Jamal's case. Uh, while I look for other folks on the switchboard, I'll share some of my notes. And it shouldn't be too difficult to access this book. I had an electronic copy uh, of this book. I'd already read it. I didn't have it in my personal library. But I said, hey, it would be nice. Uh, I like having options, uh, especially if it's a book where I'm going to have to do narrating. I like having options. So I can have an ebook and I can have a hard copy uh, just, you know, in case. Uh, I said, let me see if they have a hard copy at the library. They had multiple copies at the library. In fact, they had so many copies. The library that uh, is closest to my residence. I put the book on hold. Bam, there's a copy at that branch. We'll put it on hold and it'll be waiting for you to come pick up. I trot in to go pick the book up, you know, a few hours the next morning. Book is missing. The librarian can't find it. <laughs> I think, mm, interesting. But she says, don't even worry about it because the li- what did I tell you? Seattle, all those libraries, she said, in our uh, enormous library complex. We have multiple copies, so we'll just get one of the copies from the other branch and cite this one is missing. Maybe it'll take a day or so and it'll be right there. It took about 24 hours and book was waiting right there. So I got the copy anyway, Uh, but you should be able to get it. I mean, this is, you know, pretty. I'll get into reasons about that later. But yes, getting to notes. Uh, I am not a fan of the big roll calls in books, especially if there's no context. Uh, even though I thought it was cool, uh, like, oh, wow, you mentioned Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. And I just said he mentioned some of the very folks we already heard. Uh, Ozzie Davis, Danny Glover. I just saw his image today. He was talking about a reparations uh, program uh, in I forget the exact location, but they were talking about a so-called reparations program. And I played that audio segment at the beginning where Mumia was talking about so-called reparations. But that's grand. Uh, to you know, show a little love, people who have supported you, and certainly being in death row, or any love that you get, I mean, wow, I, I, I overstand to the degree that I can not being in death row. But uh, especially if there's no context, like if you've never heard some of these people's names before, and it's just you know a list of fifty names of people that you don't know, uh, I think it can lose its uh, impact. Because uh, you're just hearing a name. You don't have anything attached to the significance of this person or what they did. Uh, I'll take a specific example. Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, to hear her name mentioned. Now, I don't know if she invested time in his case. She could have. That wouldn't be a surprise knowing her, her life and work. Uh, I don't know if he read her work. I don't know if he maybe heard her lecture. He could have seen her debate with William Shockley. Many black people did. Someone who was focused on the problem like Mumia has been, he could have. I don't know. But there's nothing provided. And then she's in the roll call with all these other black people. Whoopee. But then, you know, as he's talking about the problem, there is no mention of white genetic annihilation. Even talking exactly, I mean, the number of black males that are in prison and there for killing a white person, and all of that. I mean, wow, I know Dr. Welsing has said a lot about that. She's not referenced there. I'm just not a fan of the roll call. I, I'm not a fan of the roll call. We don't do roll calls, right? On the pro, we don't start the pro, you know, salutations and greetings, call out Dr. Ben and Gwen Eiffel and Dr. Welsing and I mean we don't do that however 
those people do get mentioned on a pretty regular basis in context where it's connected to their work. It's connected to their life, what they were about, hopefully some of their scholarships. You can understand uh, what they thought the problem was and which we should be doing to solve this problem. What was constructive about their efforts. That I think is a different form of, of roll call, a different form of appreciation. I could be in error. Uh, when he spoke about the slave narratives, this is from the introductor introduction. John Edgar Wideman, this is not Mumia technically. I thought that was really important uh, when he was going through why Mumia's book is not popular and celebrated, although it's not the hate you give, right? It's not a New York Times bestseller, but like I said, it's they had multiple copies of the library, even if somebody did, you know steal that one say that you know coon gus is not gonna get you know live from we're not gonna have him promoting mumia's work they had a bunch of copies at the line that wouldn't surprise me even if i wasn't in uh seattle Uh, i think it's pretty widely circulated even though live from death row is an older text published in the mid 90s he has books that are much much more current uh than this one but i still feel like it's pretty easy to find um in comparison to the slave narratives uh, where he, he was talking about why they are popular. And he said that they kind of give you this idea that, well, not all white people are evil because it'll be some helpful white people that help the individual black person out. It'll be an individual story, not about the collective damage. Often it'll be about an individual black person who's able to uh, escape. Uh, he talked about even the refinement, which I thought was important because that is very very true. Uh, you see that even with uh, what's the uh, the help 21st century uh, slave narrative uh, where it's kind of focused on Viola Davis's character. She individually is able to kind of escape and do some writing where the rest of the black people in Mississippi, you know, keep hope alive, I reckon. Uh, hang in there. Not literally. Uh, even, you know, today kind of what you see, it'll be maybe an individual black person they can extricate themselves, but the rest of the, I was thinking like finding Forrester. Did people see that one that came out? I think like early two thousands, black male, he goes to school. They have a lot of those type of stories. Now, black person who's in poverty and through education, being able to be around white people, they can, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I thought all of that was uh, excellent. uh, And juxtaposing that with Mumia or even others. Although I would pause, uh, not only is Mumia's book pretty accessible, like Asada Shakur's book is pretty accessible. She's also a convicted cop killer. Angela Davis is not exactly like obscure doctor, excuse me, doctor. Angela Davis is not exactly obscure. She was on death row, you know, contemporary. So yeah, (laughs) I don't know. It's hard to hard to say. Uh, Let's see. Next if that makes sense. Uh, not saying white supremacy. That's some, I've read this book before. And I remember when, when I read this book the first time, like I said, I had not read Mr. Fuller's work. I had not read Dr. Welsing's work. Cows didn't exist. I was pretty confused uh, about white supremacy racism. Uh, reading this book now, oh man, I would not enjoy nearly as much. Like not being more precise in describing the problem like when he he was going to conclude and he was using the term race and uh, William Roden 
uh, with the undefeated. He has his podcast. He regularly, uh, he, it's a cliche or not a cliche, but he, it's one of his axioms. He says, uh, the problem is not race. The problem is racism. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like being persist, not conservatives. It's not the poor whites. It's system of white supremacy, racism. He even he has more quotes as we go along as we get in the second uh, audio segment. I'll note them as we go. Um, even getting back to the roll call really quick before getting to some of Mumia and the actual body of the text. Uh, I felt like that in the biography on Paul Robeson, that there was a lot of uh, name dropping, especially name dropping of white people that Paul Robeson hung out with and did that uh, had spent time with or was recognized by that type of thing. Uh, And I feel uh, to some degree, although it's a little different, there'll be some of that here uh, just kind of, the authors that get mentioned. I think I mentioned some of that last time around. Like there were a lot of references in the previous book that we read to white literary figures, uh, Charles Dickens and the like. Uh, And I feel like sometimes to me, that'll be a signifier as to who this book is intended for uh, as a way of appealing to white readers and saying that this is not just a book that is intended for uh, radical militant black people, that this is also trying to appeal to a wider audience uh, with those type of references, or it could just show their way of thinking, how they've been educated, maybe the the type of school environment that they've been in. But that is something that I pay attention to. I think that'll pop up here as well. Um, Like the metaphors, he has a lot of biblical metaphors, Valley of the Shadow of Death, quite a few of those. uh, That's something to be mindful of as we're kind of moving along. Uh, Television, Thomas in New York picked up on that. I did as well. The power uh, of TV. I've heard this before from people in greater confinement. Well, they will talk about how they are not taking television out of prisons. I think when I lived in Georgia, this was talked about. They were talking about overcrowding in prisons and, you know, the expense and all of that. And, you know, I can't believe they've got television. Why do they have these luxuries? No good coons. Uh, And they said, we are not. This was the prison officials. We are not getting rid of television here. That helps us maintain order. And even at that time, And I was very confused about white supremacy racism at the time. Cows didn't exist, but wow, I thought that was significant. Television is that powerful that in greater confinement, they weren't saying, oh, no, we got to have our nigger knockers. Oh, no, we got to have our bulletproof vests. They were saying, oh, no, we got to have our television. To maintain order in the prison, like, wow, wow. And even at the passage, he said, TV is more than a powerful diversion from a terrible fate. It is a psychic club metaphor, but wow, used to threaten those who dare resist the dehumanizing isolation of life on the road. To be found guilty of an institutional infraction means that one must relinquish TV. I think Thomas in New York, he said they use television to quell uprisings in the prison. Like, wow, that is correct use of quell. Well, yes, sir. No, sir. Like it. Yes, sir. I am quiet. Don't know what they're going to have on Netflix tomorrow. Might want to see old Lamar Jackson get out there and play. Mm -hmm. I'm well like, wow, that is a man. I mean, hey, victim of white supremacy. If I was in greater confinement, not even on death row, if I was just there, you know, on a misdemeanor, I might be doing the same thing. (laughs) Like I might be the the biggest 
power fan and all the rest of it. Uh, if I had to be cooped up and you're about to go crazy and you don't have contact uh, with anybody and you got racists uh, doing God knows what to you and everything else, absolutely. I would be watching television all day long. Don't care what it is. <laughs> We're going to watch Precious all day long. Let's watch Precious all day long. <laughs> like, man. But that is amazing. Uh, and, and the thing that it reminded me of is uh, he said that when uh, the institutional infraction means that one must relinquish TV. I have heard that response exactly from people who are not in greater confinement. I've heard people when they were on their jobs and they were talking about a problem often being mistreated uh, and being stressed uh, and being stressed and upset to the point that they you know, might be considered doing something where they would get in trouble or resigning or something like that. Maybe I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get so angry. I'm going to get fired. And is that I try to calm down. Remember, ooh, I like my cable television. I have heard like that's not a one-time phrase. If anybody else has heard that from someone uh, or said it yourself, um, please, you can, you can be honest and share. But I have heard that like many times uh, in my life uh, from people like, oh, man, I would tell them such and such. But, oh, man, Netflix, you know, I'm trying to. They got good things. I'm trying to watch for them. What a drug. Uh, We've had so many people over the years who've talked about uh, purging uh, television as a part of them getting into involved with counter racism. Them not no longer uh, watching television was a big part of their transition. Be mindful of that. Be mindful of that, that even on death row. You can you can have a television you can't have a typewriter I thought that was extraordinary too you can have a television glass and all you can't have a typewriter let's see Uh, the humiliation thought that was so important as well uh, because it's uh, it's deliberate Uh, this has been talked about as well those anal cavity searches and doing anal cavity searches there's not going to be any contact you're not going to have an opportunity to smuggle crack any other contraband in your anus we we know all of your tricks we've studied the coon we make that our business you're not even going to have a chance to do any of that but we still are going to do these cavity searches and strip searches and humiliate that is such a key aspect of white supremacy racism to humiliate black people especially victims of white supremacy uh, it was uh, Colin Powell that was who it was. Dr. Welsing used to reference it. There we, that's what I mean. I don't have to do a roll call. Mention Dr. Welsing on the program. VGQ to anybody who, you know, does loves roll calls. And if you mention Gusty, well, thank you kindly. Hope you still do. Um, but uh, I could just mention Dr. Welsing with context. So you would have a reason if this is your first time hearing her, you would know a little bit more about her life work and why she should be mentioned in a roll call. And then maybe I should read the ISIS papers, check out some of her lectures, maybe her visits to the cows. Dr. Welsing, she used to talk about Colin Powell. Uh, he, I guess after he left public office, uh, what is that? Early 2000s after Bush, uh, the second, uh, GW, when he stepped down, he had a line, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of, I've had many, uh, suffered many humiliations in my time in office and Dr. Welsing mentioned this quote from Colin Powell, I believe because it seemed to be related to racism, white supremacy. And he didn't go into detail, 
And she thought the same thing for the Obamas, Michelle and uh, Barack, all of them, their children, too. Uh, But that's the system of racism. And I believe that that was the word that was used specifically was uh, quiet humiliation, small humiliations. It was some form of humiliations in his time in office. And this is someone, a general served with distinction. No, you're just a nigger. We order you around. We humiliate you, treat you the same way we do any other nigger. Humiliations. Huge component of the system. And I mean, that is flagrantly on display. And he'll give a lot more details of that as we continue. That's why I said he's talking about a lot of things, not really his case so much, but lots of things in the text. Uh, He will go into more detail about the uh, statistics about a black male, black misandry. That would be another uh, black male privilege. Uh, black males being more likely to get the death penalty if their crime is committed against a white person like himself. He kind of is talking about himself in some ways, just not directly. Uh, more likely to get the death penalty if the violation is against a white person. Uh, he's going to talk more about that in much greater depth, so I will table any response to that until later. Um... I guess the last, or I'll double check, make sure we didn't miss any. Oh, yeah, we did. How about I'll be quiet and let the folks who dialed in talk. Uh, we'll get our female caller first. Irie, did you have commentary? Yes. Hi, everybody. Hi, Gus. Um, I wanted to say that um, I think I was 19 when I um, heard Jill Scott's song, Love Rain, and she mentioned... Uh, if the, the lyric is, he took me on long walks to places where butterflies were as easy. He talked about Moses and Mumia. And, um, you know, the in, Internet when I was 19 wasn't so uh, prevalent or as um, advanced as it is now. So I remember her uh, basically um, educating or alerting me to uh, Mumia, Abu-Jamal, and then um, Black Agenda Report. When I started listening to that program, they would talk about him extensively. Um, and, you know, I just basically wanted to express uh, my gratitude for that exposure. Can I mention uh, some books for that gentleman that called in about his daughter? Is this appropriate or should I wait for Saturday? Hmm. Wow. Now that is a toughie. Uh, Maybe we could do it at the end of the program. Would that work? Are you? Will you be here for the duration? As far as I know, yes. <laughs> Love it. Truthful answer. Never can tell in the system. All right. We'll do that because that is important. Request for children's literature should be honored, I think. And it's on the book club. My goodness. Where else would this have to be an appropriate environment? Uh, all right. So we have that. We'll get children's literature as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, Henry in Chicago. A retired firefighter also with us if y'all have commentary can I be heard yes sir all right greetings Gus greetings to all the callers and listeners uh for the last caller Irie I was the gentleman that requested the literature so uh, it would be nice uh, if you want to share it uh at the end of Gus requested so I will be listening um Gus I had a I, I had a different experience in trying to get this book. Uh, the libraries that, you know, that I was looking at in the South Chicago and even South suburbs, 
were uh, either out. Also interesting was one library uh, had it listed as missing as well, uh, and it was a library that was close to me. Uh, the only copies that I could have gotten closest to me was uh, there was uh, the Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago. So uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna order it online and, and just wait for it to come. Um, but yeah, that was my experience. I I did not find it easy to get it from the library uh, from from my you know from my uh, standpoint in, here in Chicago. Um, <clears throat> You also referenced uh, Danny Glover with the reparations. Uh, that is here in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, it's a suburb of Chicago. Uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to use the sale of marijuana as uh, rep- as payment for reparations. And, uh, and I guess apparently Danny Glover is supporting it. He was here yes- uh, yesterday in regards to supporting it. So uh, I just wanted to give context to that. <clears throat> in regards to the uh, the book, now, it's interesting that Mumia gets to, you know, write this literature in prison. And I was, I was offering wondering how much of this literature has been altered or edited and probably not Mumia's work because, you know, when prisoners write letters, uh, I, I think they open them and read them, you know, just, you know, just as a, you know, just as what they call security. Uh, so, you know, I often question how much how much of this is is edited because I know you mentioned that he doesn't he doesn't use uh, white supremacy or doesn't use uh, you know direct uh, you know you know not being direct about the problem. So you know, I often wonder how much of, of this is edited uh, because he is in prison, so he doesn't have that type of freedom to you know write whatever he wants to, and he has to be you know very careful on on what he writes. Um, in the introduction, uh, I was listening to the introduction, and it was uh, <clears throat> talking about, uh, you know, trying to, uh, uh, whenever you want to oppress the people, you know, you have to portray them with low IQs. Um, I uh, I thought about, first of all, I thought about Lopper Stoddard's book, The Rising Tide of Color, uh, where he, you know, basically talks about black folks being the, the dumbest of the, all of the race. Of uh, the races, uh, and also too, uh, you mentioned this uh, William Shockley and his debate with Dr. Francis Quest Wilson and how he uh, <laughs> how he tried to make this argument about you know um, black people's IQs. <laughs> what was so funny about that debate was, you know, William Shockley had all these powerpoints, well, not powerpoints, but these charts and everything, and <laughs> Dr. Wilson just came there by himself and shot everything down. She didn't have no charts or anything. So that was a, it was a very interesting and funny debate how he had all these weapons and she didn't have anything. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's all I have right now in my life. Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. We'll get the children's literature. Uh, I thought that was a really uh, important passage where uh, they were talking about in the introduction about IQ and uh, demonizing, dehumanizing uh, black people. And I, too, William Shockley, I went right to Dr. Francis. Again, there you go. Then you put Dr. Wellesley in context. We just don't mention her name. Why are we mentioning her name? So many reasons. Let's count. There we go. I thought of that, too, uh, when the IQ came up. 
the bell curve because that is directly related uh, to William Shaw. That's the same ilk. That's the same people. That's the same, you know, crew. They hang out together, eat lunch together, <laughs> at the coffee shop together, all of that. Sit around and talk bad about Mumia together. Uh, so one, I thought, because we talked, and I think this is when she was on the program in 2013, I think Dr. Welsing debated Charles Murray, who co-authored the bell curve. I have to go back and find the newspaper article, but I think I have it. And we talked about it. I think they did a debate of some sort. He got paid like $12,000. She got paid $6,000. I think that's in the archives. That's one, two. Uh, I looked online and I found this report. This is at the Washington Post published in 1994. So this is one year before this book was published live from death row. The fusillade of anger, bitterness, and debunking from a range of critics of the bell curve has pounded us relentlessly the last few days. Understanding that this is a tremendously painful and emotional issue, I still would ask black people to take their emotions out of the issue. Instead, let's use this ultra-hyped, carefully promoted book as an occasion to put another taboo topic on the table. Why are white people so obsessed with black people's color and genetics, but still unable or unwilling to talk about the white supremacist behavior that motivates this mania? Getting that subject discussed and aired can be the real value to blacks and society in general of the bell curve written by Charles Murray and the late Richard Hernstein. The book essentially argues that blacks on average have lower intelligence than whites. And while nearly every respectable scientist and opinion leader has blasted the book, the publishers announced Thursday that sales are booming and that they will cash in on free publicity by doubling the number of copies in print to 200,000 white people are projecting onto black people that something is wrong with black genetics when they themselves are concerned about their minority status on the planet said Francis Cress Welsing, a Washington psychiatrist. I was interested in Welsing's opinion because she also is the person who most effectively hmm, debated William B. Shockley in the 1970s. Shockley became known for his insistent advocacy of the idea widely rejected in the scientific community that black people were genetically inferior to white people. He, like Hernstein and Murray, belongs to a school of so-called scholarship that for more than 100 years in the United States has asserted that black people are inherently inferior to white people. Despite their hedges and caveats, most of these advocates of white supremacy have been roundly criticized by legitimate scientists who have underscored that these base estimations of black people are rooted in politics, not science. Thus, the data Murray and Hernstein came up with in their 845-page tome are not important. What is important is their obsession and where such obsession might lead. Still, as black people, we expend so much physical and emotional energy moaning about the attacks that we rarely step back and examine beyond making the most superficial charges of racism what is behind the recurrent assaults. Just a tad because Dr. Welsing comes up one more time. Now is the time for us to try to understand in depth why some whites have this need to spend so much time talking about black people's genetics with almost no focus on their own behavior. Too often in history, we find out where too often in history, we find out where it does end. It ends in justification of holocausts, in the justification of lynching, in the justification of slavery. Too often in our history, it has led to the justification of heinous acts committed when pseudoscience, what a word, has given permission to those acts to occur. 
Murray and Hernstein linking black so-called intellectual disability to poverty, crime and welfare foresee the coming of a custodial state in which low IQ underclass is kept in a more lavish version of the Indian reservation. But in the view of many black people, the march to that state of affairs already has begun. We watch as the society gets righteous in its anger and passes punitive measures to attempt to address societal problems. Many of the nation's inner cities are ghettos. Hundreds of thousands of young black men are warehoused in prisons. Many more are dying from imported guns and imported drugs. Proposals for no parole and three strikes and you're out of society abound well-intentioned white people ought to be looking into this but I'm not surprised that they are not said Welsing author of the controversial Cress theory of color confrontation and racism white supremacy I will stop there Washington Post 1994 speaking of taboos so this is 25 years ago is that right wow Woo. Reading is more important than watching television. Retired firefighter, thank you for your patience, sir. Did you have commentary? Yes, greetings. Uh, I was just thinking uh, the time that uh, Mr. Jamal has been not only in greater confinement, but... uh, something called death row 1983 I think I heard uh, but I, I think uh, even through the through the process I think it started in 81 I was just joining the fire department uh, at the time and so that's basically how I measure uh the uh torture that he has been existing in uh for such a long time uh and uh i would estimate that he has not been wasting uh time uh, he's quite active as far as someone going into greater confinement having a skill uh, because from my understanding, he was a journalist before he was uh, incarcerated. Uh, and he still utilizes his uh, skill. Uh, I have done here. Uh, yeah, they, they, I, uh, I'm surprised that there's anybody on death row, although I do know there are some who are on death row for quote unquote, the murder of a non-white black person, but it's not a lot. That's for sure. And I would say probably, uh, even so the reasons, the reasons why, uh, that would be, it's primarily because they would use that dead black body as compensation to get at the person, the live person that they put on death row. Uh, that's if if I'm understood on what I just said. Uh, that's probably why, in a lot of cases, why that non-white black person is on death row, and even some white people. Only although it's probably a, only enough to fill up uh, 
ten or less in the, uh, in this part of the world anyway uh, that are white that for uh, uh, killing somebody on death row. Uh, uh, yes, he's very active. The, uh, the last thing, uh, the uh, the lack of the word white supremacy. Uh, I would say in my understanding that is to be expected in a lot of uh, articles that we read, especially from non-white people, because it doesn't doesn't make us feel good, <laughs> for one thing. To know that you have been dominated, someone has dominated you, uh, uh, although at the same time one is not saying that uh, there is no fight in non-white black people, uh, but uh, it doesn't it doesn't make us feel good. So therefore, that would probably be a discouragement for a lot of non-white people uh, for not even either articulating the word, let alone talk about putting it in print. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I appreciate Mr. Fuller and Dr. Welsing, uh, because they have went beyond their quote-unquote feelings and uh, strive for accuracy uh, when they are speaking to other people, speaking or writing. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Important observations. Uh, I, too, I think uh, that's so important in terms of uh, the role white people are getting this book uh, published, Noelle Hanrahan. I think she does the audio commentaries. He talked about her bringing the recording uh, to the prison. Uh, he mentioned Ed Asner, who is a white actor who was one of the characters in the boondocks. If folks saw that, he was uh, Ed Wunsler the third, loosely based on the Bush family, I think. Uh, but he's white at the end of the day. Uh, now, he has been a longtime supporter of Mumia Abu-Jamal. I think he's involved in different uh, counter-racist projects. We'll probably get an audio snippet of him. Uh, before we uh, roll out Mr. Asner, modern day John Brown. Uh, but if you, and again, if I was on death row, any white person, if they brought me a loaf of cornbread, you had better believe I'd be writing them a thank you note or anything else. Hope they get me another loaf of cornbread before, you know, I check out of here. So I totally understand. I'm not, you know, I'm just pointing out that I think being in such you know a vulnerable state as we all are but I mean that is hyper vulnerable you're in death row greater confinement well he's not on death row now but still greater confinement um, man like you certainly uh, might be willing to compromise a lot more than you would if you had if you were not in such uh, a terrible uh, predicament uh, in terms of your vocabulary uh, and how you articulate the problem uh, is the same type of thing uh, with Paul Robeson. The exact same type of thing with Paul Robeson. These would be the no count whites uh, that he was hanging out with in the 30s. Talk about Paul Robeson in the 30s and 40s uh, at the height of his kind of fame. He's hanging out with, oh, we're socialists, we're communists, you know, down with the system, down with the workers of the world. The same type of nonsense because uh, that's what some of these folks are. They say, oh, yeah, we're with the proletariat. We're Marxists. We're revolution. All of that nonsense. Oh, yeah, we're with you, Mumia. We're with you. Fight on. It's the same thing. 
Uh, it doesn't mean Ed Asner and all the rest of Amy uh, Goodman, Democracy Now! They have Umia on on a pretty regular basis. They'll call and have him uh, from greater confinement. But when you have these white people uh, who sometimes might be the only reason that you have an outlet to the world, able to publish these books, able to speak so that people know that you're still alive, know about your case. Uh, so there might be some interest for you to maybe get an appeal, maybe for you to live. Cause I think that was a part of him. If, if all of that wasn't happening, maybe he's dead. Maybe he's not even alive now. He could have been killed uh, at some point. He killed an enforcement official. Let's remember. So I think that's super important to keep in mind as uh, the point Henry in Chicago raised about, you know, what has been changed, what's been edited, whether it's a willful edit and, you know, me and Noel Hanrahan sit down and talk and maybe it would be easier to get your book published and more, uh, more, it'll have a wider acceptance, i.e. more white people would be down to read it and back your cause to get you off a of death row. Uh, if we don't talk about white supremacy, maybe let's say it's the conservatives. Maybe let's say it's Southerners. Maybe let's just change up the languaging a little bit. Super easy. In addition to, you know, the correctional officers might have a word or three to say about, you know, what you've written before it gets out of that prison. That, uh, as was said, even your letters sometimes can be censored. Sometimes they don't even allow the letters to leave uh, unless I've been misinformed, depending on what you say. Uh, With that, uh, I feel like I had one other... Thing I was going to say the first portion did I get all my notes mm. I have to I guess the last thing I'll, I'll get in um, yeah I'll save it for the next time these quotes there we'll just do the second audio segment that way we'll have ample time for folks to share uh, once the second segment concludes so again Uh, For the version of the book I have, we are starting the subtitle Death March and Lessons Unlearned. Uh, For me, this is on page 19, but, you know, there are a few different pressings of the text. Uh, Context of white supremacy, Pennsylvania inmate, victim of white supremacy, Mumia Abu-Jamal, his 1995 publication live from Death Row, audio segment number two. Death March and Lessons Unlearned There is a quickening on the nation's death rows of late, a picking up of the pace of the march toward death. The political pride is sparking movement and judges in death cases are beginning to find themselves under increasing pressure to make the final judgment. As murder rates rise in American cities, So, too, does the tide of fear. Both politicians and judges continue to ride that tide that washes toward the execution chamber's door. No matter that of the ten states with the highest murder rate, eight lead the country in executions that supposedly deter. No matter that of the ten states with the lowest murder rate, only one Utah has executed anyone since 1976. No matter that the effectiveness of the death penalty is not really debated. No matter that the contention that the death penalty makes citizens safer is no longer seriously argued. 
habeas corpus, fundamental to English law since the reign of King Charles and to the U.S. Constitution since its inception, now faces evisceration under the hand of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, a possibility unthinkable just a few years ago. Many of the condemned, with constitutional error rife throughout their records, will soon be executed without meaningful review. States that have not slain in a generation now ready their machinery. Generators whine, poison liquids are mixed, gases are measured and readied. Silent chambers await the order to smother life. Increasingly, America's northern states now join the rushing pack, anxious to relink themselves with their pre-Furman heritage. Deterrence? The March 1988 execution of Willie Darden in Florida, exceedingly well-publicized here and abroad, should have had enormous deterrent effect, according to capital theories, but less than 11 hours after 2,000 volts coursed through Darden's manacled flesh, a Florida corrections officer, well-positioned to absorb and understand the lessons of the state ritual, erupted in a jealous rage and murdered a man in the maternity wing of a hospital. Seems like a lesson well-learned to me. Yale Law Journal, January 1991 Descent into Hell The man sat with arm shackled to the steel grill. A passing glance told much of the tale. A story of utter total alienation, written in every line, wrinkled in his pale face. His white, unstriped jumpsuit revealed the prison's assignment of the man to the so-called psychiatric observation unit. His inability or unwillingness to have eye contact with the men around him suggested avoidance. His tremors and his repetitive, rapid hand and leg clenches and other movements told a darker story, that of heavy or long-term use of powerful psychotropic drugs such as Thorazine, Stelazine, or Haldol, a side effect of which is tardive dyskinesia, a condition that renders its sufferers prey to a wild variety of inappropriate body ticks and shakings. The spark, powerful mind-bending drugs prescribed to prisoners liberally, especially in light of a recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling that allows prison officials free reign to drug prisoners in sate. The older prisoner with whom I was walking nodded in the man's direction. Check that guy out. I saw him, man. He plenty messed up. You're right, but he ain't gonna get no help here. The brief exchange was shelved with no apparent reason for recall later. A day later, during the midday meal, the unmistakable odor of burnt hair drifted sharply around the block. Somebody burning they hair, man. You smell that? I smell it, but that ain't hair. That's a blanket blanket hell that's hair man human hair fire up big boy bellowed until others took up the call fire up fire up for five frantic minutes the call resounded and guards the ever-present 
keys a jangle ran from cell to cell from tier to tier until the burning smoking cell was located and the white frothy liquid quenched the flames moments later a naked man walked down the tier his front darkened like wheat toast an acrid stench rising like an infernal sacrifice he walked slowly deliberately as if lost in thought as if involved in a languid aimless stroll on the beach twelve hours later he was pronounced dead with over seventy percent of his body burned he was identified as robert barnes fifty seven years old of delaware county pennsylvania a recent transfer from greaterford prison to huntington prison the man had reportedly warned officials that if he were placed in the hole disciplinary custody status and locked down he would kill himself he was placed in the hole he killed himself although he had an extensive psychiatric history and had made a recent suicide threat he was placed in a strip cell for 24 hours a day when he was found his burned jumpsuit had been totally consumed like many long-term prisoners in Pennsylvania with serious psychiatric and mental problems Huntington's hole became a way station for a descent into hell the visit in the midst of darkness this little one was a light ray tiny with a mini mouse voice this daughter of my spirit had finally made the long trek westward into the bowels of this man-made hell situated in the south central pennsylvania boondocks she like my other children was just a baby when i was cast into hell and because of her youth and sensitivity she hadn't been brought along on family visits until now she burst into the tiny visiting room her brown eyes aglitter with happiness stopped stunned staring at the glassy barrier between us and burst into tears at this arrogant attempt at state separation in milliseconds sadness and shock shifted into fury as her petite fingers curled into tight fists which banged and pummeled the plexiglass barrier which shuddered and shimmied but didn't shatter break it break it she screamed her mother recovering from her shock bundled up hamida in her arms as sobs rocked them both my eyes filled to the brim my nose clogged her unspoken words echoed in my consciousness why can't i hug him why can't we kiss why can't i sit in his lap why can't we touch why not i turned away to recover i put on a silly face turned back called her to me and talked silly to her girl how you gonna breathe with all them boogies in your nose amid the rolling trail of tears a twinkle started like dawn and before long the shy beginnings of a smile meandered across her face as we talked silly talk i reminded her of how she used to hug our cat until she almost strangled the poor animal and hamida's denials were developing into laughter the three of us talked silly talk liberally mixed with serious talk and before long our visit came to an end her smile restored she uttered a parting poem that we used to say over the phone i love you i miss you and when i see you i'm gonna kiss you 
the three of us laughed and they left. Over five years have passed since that visit, but I remember it like it was an hour ago, the slams of her tiny fists against that ugly barrier, her instinctual rage against it, the state-made blockade raised under the rubric of security, her hot tears. They haunt me. November 1994 On Tilt by State Design Harry Washington shrieks out of an internal orgy of psychic pain. Niggers, keep my family's name out your mouth. You freak, you filth, you racist garbage. All my family believe in God. Keep your twisted satanic filth to yourself. Keep my family's name out your nasty mouth. I have stopped the reflexive glance down in front of Harry's cell. For now, as in all the times in the past, I know no one is out near his ground-level cell. I know Harry is in a mouth-foaming rage because of the ceaseless noises echoing within the chambers of his tortured mind. For Harry and I are among the growing numbers of Pennsylvanians on death row, and Harry, because of mind-snapping isolation, a bitterly racist environment, and the ironies the auguries of fate has begun the slide from depression through deterioration to dementia. While we both share the deadening effects of isolation and an environment straight out of the redneck boondocks, Harry, like so many others, has slipped. Many of his tormentors, here both real and imagined, have named him Nut and describe him as on tilt. Perhaps the cruel twists of fate popped his cork. Who can say? A young man, once a correctional officer, now a death row convict. Once he wore the keys, now he hears the keys in an agonizing wait for death. The conditions of most of America's death rows create Harry Washington's by the score. Mix in solitary confinement, around the clock, lock in, no contact visits, no prison jobs, no educational programs by which to grow, psychiatric treatment facilities designed only to drug you into a coma ladle in hostile overtly racist prison guards and staff add the weight of the falling away of family ties and you have all the fixings of a stressful psychic stew designed to deteriorate to erode one's humanity designed that is by the state with full knowledge of its effects nearly a century ago a Colorado man was sentenced to death for killing his wife on his arrival at Colorado State Penitentiary, James Medley was placed in solitary. Medley promptly brought an original writ of habeas corpus in the U.S. Supreme Court, which in 1890 consisted of six Republicans and three Democrats. In the case, N. Re Medley, 134 U.S. 160, 1890, the court reached back to old English law to the early 1700s of King George II to conclude that solitary confinement was an additional punishment of the most important and painful character and, as applied to Medley, unconstitutional. Fast forward nearly a century to 1986 to the infamous federal court decision of 
Peterkin v. Jeffries, where Pennsylvania death row inmates sought to have solitary confinement declared unconstitutional, and one hears a judge deny relief, saying, in the immortal words of now Chief Justice Rehnquist, nobody promised them a rose garden that is, solitary is okay. The notion that human progress is marked by an evolving standard of decency from the less civilized to the more civilized, from the more restrictive to the less restrictive, from tyranny to expanding freedom, dies a quick death on the rocks of today's Rehnquistian courts. Indeed, what other court could make the Republican-controlled Southern Harlan Fuller Court of the 1890s seem positively radical by comparison. Harry constitutes his howlings and mindless mutterings of rage at no one in particular. June 1989 On Death Row, Fade to Black It is about time the court faced the fact that the white people in the South don't like the colored people. William H. Rehnquist, law clerk, 1953. A light-skinned native of Lenape lineage sidles up to a fellow prisoner in nearby steel cage for a bit of small talk. Damn, man, the Indian youth exclaims in his northeastern Pennsylvania nasal twang, I've been here too damn long. Why you say that, running bear? Well, cause I caught myself saying police instead of police and foe instead of for. The two men yuck it up. Gallows humor. Bear, for the first time in his life, lives in a predominantly black community, albeit an artificial warped one, for it is bereft of the laughter of women or the bawling of babes. Only men live here, mostly young black men. Welcome to Huntington's Death Row, one of three in Pennsylvania. The denizens of Death Row are black as molasses and the staff are white bread. Long-termers on the row, those here since 1984, recall a small but seemingly significant event that took place back then. Maintenance and construction staff, forced by a state court order and state statute to provide men with a minimum of two hours daily outside exercise rather than the customary 15 minutes every other day erected a number of steel cyclone fenced boxes which strikingly resemble dog runs or pet pens although staff assured inmates that the pens would be used only for disciplinary cases the construction ended and the assurances were put to the test the first day after completion of the cages death cases all free of any disciplinary infractions were marched out to the pens for daily exercise outdoors. Only when the cages were full did full recognition dawn that all the caged men were African. Where were the white cons of death row? A few moments of silent observation proved the obvious. The death row block offered direct access to two yards, one composed of cages, the other free space, water fountains, full-court basketball spaces and hoops, and an area for running. The cages were for the blacks on death row. The open yards were for the whites on the row. 
the blacks, due to racist insensitivity and sheer hatred, were condemned to awaiting death in indignity. The event provided an excellent view in microcosm of the mentality of the criminal system of injustice suffused by the toxin of racism. The notes of a youthful law clerk of 1953 are the ruling opinions of America's highest court of today. The clerk of yesteryear is today's chief justice and the word South can be juxtaposed with North, West, East, or even court with equal applicability. A people who once looked to the court for enlightened protection now face only hostility. Nowhere is that clearer than in capital cases before the court, for at the heart of this country's death penalty scheme is the crucible of race. Who would dare argue otherwise after examining the pivotal case McCleskey v. Kemp, 1987, where the court took a delicate moonwalk backward away from a mountain of awesome evidence that showed incontrovertibly that, one, defendants charged with killing white victims in Georgia are 4.3 times as likely to be sentenced to death as defendants charged with killing blacks, two, race of the victim determines whether a death penalty is returned, Three, nearly six of every 11 defendants convicted of killing whites would not have gotten the death penalty had their victim been black. Four, 20 of every 34 black defendants would not have received the death penalty had their victims been black. And five, cases involving black defendants and white victims are more likely to result in a death sentence than cases featuring any other racial combination of defendant and victim. McCleskey's claims, wrote the court's centrist Justice Powell, cannot prevail because, taken to its logical conclusion, McCleskey throws into serious question the principles that underlie our entire criminal justice system. Put quite another way, the McCleskey court denied relief while accepting as valid his data proving the above five statements, not because his studies or their conclusions were untrue, but because of the impact such findings would have on other cases. Welcome to the Great March Backward. McCleskey, of course, was not alone. At base, McCleskey revealed a system of demonstrable, documented imbalance where race of victim and race of defendant determined whether one would live or die. This, the court said, was perfectly constitutional. Robert A. Burt, a Yale Law Scholar, has examined the implications of McCleskey in light of the 1986 case Lockhart v. McCree, where the court similarly rejected the argument that a death qualified pro-prosecution, pro-capital punishment jury offends the fundamental constitutional command for a fair, impartial jury. Professor Burt notes, when we add this finding, i.e. that Lockhart juries tend to be white and male because blacks and women are generally anti-death penalty and are thus excluded to the evidence gathered in McCleskey that capital juries impose the death penalty with disproportionate frequency on blacks who murder whites and infrequently in response to any murders of blacks a grim portrait of the American criminal justice system emerges. This portrait shows that law enforcement in the most serious and publicly visible cases is entrusted predominantly to groups of white men 
who value white lives more than blacks and thus they take special vengeance on blacks who murder whites and are much less concerned about the murder of blacks. Indeed, its low valuation of blacks coupled with its special arousal when blacks murder whites suggests a law enforcement regime that acts as if our society were gripped by fears about and prepared to take preemptive strikes against an explosion of race warfare. As of July 25, 1988, the state court administrator's office recorded 107 people on Pennsylvania's death row and of that total, 50 from Philadelphia alone. Of that 50, 40 were of African blood with seven whites and three Hispanics statewide blacks Only 9% of the population emerge as a clear majority on Pennsylvania's death row. Nationally, the picture is equally bleak. As Africans, just over 11% of the nation's total grow into 40% of America's national death row. More often than not, capital punishment in America carries a black, brown, or red face. From daybreak to dusk, Black voices resound in exchanges of daily dramas that mark time in the dead zone. The latest on a lawyer, the latest on a lover. Tidbits of thought bouncing off bars of steel and walls of stone, relentlessly in the wait for death. Echoes of Dred Scott ring in today's McCleskey opinion, again noting the paucity of rights held by Africans in the land of the free, who had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race either in social or political relations and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Chief Justice Tawney sits again, reincarnate on the Ringquest Court of the Modern Age. Tawney's Court in Scott left intact the power of the slaver by denying constitutional rights to Africans, even those born in the United States. Rinquest's court in McCleskey leaves intact the power of the state to further cheapen black life. 133 years after Scott, and still unequal in life as in death. April 1990 From an Echo in Darkness a step into light. Psst, psst. Yo, Moo, Moo, you up? Asks the Italian Cherokee cheer runner, his accent betraying his South Philly roots. Stirring from the mattress, I trudge to the cell door, look down to where Mike stands, and glower at his bright face. What's up, man? I grumble at sleep's interruption. You ready for this? Mike asks rhetorically, his face ablaze with a smile. Man, what's up? I demand a bit peeved at the wordplay. Jay Smith, he's going home. Mike announces, and a heartfelt sense of happiness at another man's good fortune lifts my mood instantly. No shit, Mike? Swear to God, Moo, he's packing his gear right now. Says he got an order from the Supreme Court throwing out his conviction. Ain't that something? Yeah, Mike, that's something wonderful. Long live John Africa. 
That's good news, man. Jay Smith, a common Anglo-Saxon, everyday American name, belonged to an old, quiet, gray-haired, professional white dude who, until recently, was among 149 souls on Pennsylvania's death row after his conviction for three killings that sparked national attention, several books, and a television movie. Prosecutors, police, and the press painted him as an arch-demon, a twisted sadist, a triple killer, and an all-around not-so-nice guy light years from the lower Marion school principal and army reservist his neighbors and students knew. Having read a news article depicting him as cold and evil with goat-like gray eyes, I half expected when I met him to see him bounding around on two cloven hooves. But, on appeal, it appeared as if the real animals, skunks, sent him to death row for the Supreme Court reversed his conviction, citing prosecutorial misconduct, and his lawyer steadily uncovered lying cops, hidden evidence, and secret deals between investigators and a Hollywood novelist for inside info on the case. His prosecutor, who rose to national office on his case, fell just as swiftly when arrested and convicted on cocaine-related charges. On Friday, September 18, 1992, at midday, the word came to Smith that his case was over. The prosecution discharged, the defendant free to go. Encaged in Pennsylvania hellholes and on death row since 1979, Jay Smith packed his meager possessions, sent a few bye-byes around, shook off the ashes of 12 years and walked away, stepping back into life. All the books, the multi-million dollar movies of the week, and the damning news articles paled beside the reality of one man walking from the stagnant cesspool of prison into freedom. When one reporter asked him about his plans, he replied, I don't know. I've been fighting so long for this that I hadn't planned for anything beyond. I'm 64. Maybe in a year I can collect Social Security. But what security exists in a system that plotted, lied, connived, and hid evidence to destroy one man's life that took 12 years from his life, his profession, his family? September 1992 Text of White Supremacy That will wrap up our <clears throat> second audio segment we'll pick up next week uh, Let's see The What's this one? Got thrown off on my page count here. Oh, okay. There we go. So next week we'll pick up uh, from... We're still pretty early in the book. Uh, for me, this is Night... What is that? Night Raiders. Night Raiders Meet Rage. We're on page 44 uh, in the text. Night Raiders Meet Rage. That's what we'll pick up at for next week. Live from Death Row. Uh, if you have questions, comments from the second audio or any portion of what we cover today, the number again, 605-313-5164. B 
the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you didn't get to share at all, make sure you go up, <clears throat> make sure you go ahead, speak up now. Uh, don't wait till the last moment if we missed you uh, during the first portion of the audio. Uh, I will, I guess I'll just get in. Uh, it's striking that last essay that we heard where Jay Smith, this white man who I guess got out after had been there unjustly, had a movie done about him and all that. They say, uh, long live John Africa. They give praise to John Africa for this white man suspected racist being released. While, Yeah. Given everything we just heard, I thought that was, that's where we ended at this week. Significant, uh, folks have comments, uh, to share. Uh, star six one. If you didn't get to share it all, definitely get your hand up. We'll make sure we do not miss you. Uh, let's see. So retired firefighter, Irie Thomas in New York. Uh, let's see. All of y'all are here. Uh, I'll nab other Chicago, uh, Henry in Chicago. Uh, I'll nab other folks as I see hands. Copy her. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's it always um, disappoints me when you talk about all the amenities of Seattle and your um, libraries <laughs> because, um, you know, the closest one to me is three blocks away and it's in Harlem River Projects. And um, that's a little, it's about the size of a two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> you would be like, uh-uh. Uh, never saw nothing like it in my life. Either way, um, did you say that he comes on, um, Mamiya comes on Amy Goodman's show. I did. I guess it's democracy now. I mean, yeah. Anyway, um, she, they will wow. call, they will, uh, I'll make that one of the audio segments, but they will, uh, do phone, our reports. I'm trying to think, cause they've had him on to talk about a lot of different things. Like they'll have him on to talk about his case or just other things, uh, that matter of fact, let me pull it up right now. Cause I'm sure it'll, it'll be like, it's not a one-time thing. Like democracy now has been on for a long time. Right. So, you know, I'd say they probably have him on every, maybe once every other year or so, if I had to take a guess. Wow. Well, I was just going to say, man, that's, that's white power there. I mean, uh, you know, white Jewish power on top of that. I mean, that I mean, she could get pull strings to get someone on death row. It has to be cavity search to see someone in a non-physical, you know, but she can get him on the news so everyone in the world can see him. That's, that's amazing. Um, man, long live John Africa. I wrote that note down, too. Um, after I found out that this was a white guy who um, seemingly was, was a, as he said, a demon. I mean, he killed three people. It might have been, you know, supplanted evidence or whatever, but just... I thought, man, I, was he saying that like as a good thing, or I, I didn't quite catch it. So, I think what you just said put it in context for me. Like, oh, okay, so maybe you know he used this as a, a victory, you know, for himself. You know, um, but then again, just sitting here talking about it makes me think, man, that probably in his situation is like hope. You know, it's something for him to live for. You know, maybe I can get out of here one day. You know, but um, um. 
other than that, um, that's all I had to say about the second reading. Um, was you know the the way he described this person and, and a white person um, suspected of killing three people. I don't know if they were black or not. Probably not. But either way, um, movies and stuff made out of him. So he's coming out of jail, a very wealthy man, probably. So um, just interested. I wonder if Mamiya, if he's released, if he, um, you know, has you know any resources and things from all of the stuff he's published and, you know, from Amy, doing Amy Goodman's show and things like that. Uh, but I'll read my line, Dustin. For sure. Uh, I did a search on Democracy Now! I just put in uh, Mumia's name and I got over 200 results. Now, sometimes it won't necessarily be him. It'll just be that they talk about him. But I mean, they do talk about Mumia. He is referenced regularly and they do have him on the program. I played a sound clip uh, of him from Democracy Now! on the compensatory call in. And one of our investors noted the call was interrupted. Uh, if you have had a phone call with someone who's in greater confinement, sometimes they'll interrupt and it'll be like, you know, this call is coming from Rikers Island or such and such correctional facility. It may be, you know, whatever the recording is to let you know you're talking to somebody in greater confinement that happened while they were talking to him on democracy now. And I think it happened several times. Okay. It was like, it was ticking. Yeah, so I, Go ahead. You just explained it to me, Gus, because I do know that sometimes when you um, play his clips, it's real crystal clear. And sometimes when you play his clips, it's like he's on a jail phone talking mm -hmm. and you can hear the, um, you know, so that that's when he's on Democracy Now! You're seeing. Well, it just depends because he does do interviews. I know he's done interviews on uh, like KPFK in California, which is public radio and democracy now and other outlets. Uh, I think uh, J.R. Valray, Minister of Information, he had him uh, on California public radio, black uh, black report radio several times. Uh, so he does, you know, quite a bit of, of broadcasting uh, from where he does. I think it just varies. Uh, sometimes the recordings might be like, an audio recording like somebody has a recorder or what have you and they're able to do it that way and then I think sometimes it's over a phone so that's why sometimes you hear a lot of yelling in the background and that sort of thing or the interruptions where they'll come on with the automated message thank you sir thank you mm -hmm. uh, but yeah they uh, this is one of the, one of the interviews that I found that there are many this one is from October of 2016 uh, and I'm just reading the transcript Amy Goodman she says we are joined now by Mumia Abu-Jamal who just called in from prison in Pennsylvania now he was not on death row at the time uh, 2016 Mumia we did not expect this call can you talk about your thoughts right now on the election as you watch behind bars in this very unusual 2016 electoral season and he goes on, they talk, you can, you can uh, listen to it, but he talks about the election and they have a number of the, he talks about his health problems, his hepatitis C, and they weren't treating him for that. So they talk about a number of things, but I mean, this, this wasn't even planned. So you talk about white power. I don't know how many inmates, uh, who he would still be a lifer who've been in prison for this long can just, you know, hop on their phone 
and ring up Amy Goodman and get on a live broadcast where it's not even planned. We didn't even have a, a scheduled, I mean, if that's to be believed, uh, even if it wasn't, I don't know how many people could do that and to regularly be able to get, you know, at Amy Goodman and, and all these other outlets. I mean, that is, yeah, that is something to consider. Uh, other folks uh, have commentary that they wanted to share. While folks are getting their thoughts together, I'll go back over my second portion of notes. Uh, just that the, what I said about that last little portion uh, that we read there uh, at the conclusion, this white guy, Jay Smith, uh, who gets out while every all these other black inmates, black males, he said, are stuck there. Uh, that to me seems like audience we talk about editing like not saying white supremacy and that sort of thing this anecdote now I'm not saying that it's not true this totally may have happened although according to his own numbers you know that it's so black on death row that you know but okay we, we let's say that it's true let's go with that this goes to what I said about hey audience let's make sure that we widen the appeal we you're on death row he was at the time that this was written Let's get more support. If we get white people, white people are more powerful. You might only have to get four or five white people and they might, you know, be enough to get this thing moving in the correct direction. That might have been the type of language, you know, logical, like, you know, this isn't to compromise your voice. This is to try to help you get out of jail. So let's make sure that we're not writing something where they can say that, oh, you're just you hate white people and you don't like white people and you hate all white people. Let's make sure that we can write this in a way that, uh, you know, that it shows that you have you're, you're you're pulling for Jay Smith. You're happy for him. He was locked up for 11 years and you were happy to see that he's getting out of here, even if you weren't long live John Africa. I could see cause, And plus, this is such a short a uh, little anecdote. It's not even a whole lot of information here, you know, just the movie and what happened and it was wrong and then it's over. Like <laughs> it's it it start it ends on page 43. It starts on page 40. What is that? Three pa- you know, that's what I mean. it's not what purpose would does that little nugget there serve other than that? Appeal to a white reader, I think. Uh and that happens in a few ways. I think even the section before that, which goes into more of the McCleskey court case, important information, uh, that would kind of be another one where I'd look at and say, now, who is this written for? Uh, some of these essays, uh, it seems, were published in like legal reviews, law journals. I mean, they're they're, you know, going over court cases and looking at legal uh, legal reviews, legal precedents. Uh, I could see where some of this could be published in a law review. I think one of these was in the Yale law review and he's talking about uh, a law professor. So who's the audience who's supposed to be reading uh, this information or at minimum, uh, it seems like it's appealing to white people in these positions. And again, if it's Yale law review and that sort of thing, we might be appealing to white attorneys who could help get us off a death row, pick up a pro bono case, get you some attention and, you know, help me uh, figure my way out of this legal quagmire. I get it. That's logical. Um, But the information about uh, in that second or second to last essay that we read where they're talking about the let's put the McCleskey report decision in context where black 
males in particular are over four times more likely to get the death penalty if the victim is a white person. Putting that in context with the infrequency of a white person being punished for violating a black person uh, and the language that he said about what is this, what does this mean about a society that seems like it is designed in a very punitive way to attack black people uh, and this sort of uh, fear or thought that, you know, black people might be out to get white people. That is very slave reminiscent. Uh, that's how the plantation operated, that there might be more Nat Turners. There might be more Denmark Vessies. Uh, there might be more black people who are attempting to do something about white supremacy, racism. We got to send a message. Any of you all try to do something. This is what will happen. We got to strike fear, terrorism. We got to strike fear uh, in them. This is what will happen if you do so. I thought that was really important, uh, even though included, you know, from I suspect a uh, white author, super important information. Uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. I thought. the portion where he talked about the visit from his daughter that was really powerful really painful we talked about uh, humiliation and I think that right there uh, totally stripping family ties human connections to even be able to touch uh, another human event like the only touching that's going to be allowed is me coming to grope and violate you uh, with our cavity search and all the rest to see that you aren't smuggling crack cocaine and the rest of your contraband uh, that we don't give you by the way only contraband you're going to have is what we give what we provide uh, but no touching no hugs no none of that you're an animal you're a convict we want to remind you of that at all times uh, but I, I can I can grasp. I think some uh, the effect of this is supposed to be that the family does not want to endure this, the humiliations because that that the searches and all that they do that to them as well. Sometimes frequently we've had reports on that. They don't want to endure this. They don't want to see you enduring this, vice versa. So the designed impact, exactly what he said, erode those family connections. So you're just further isolated. Can just do more and more and more. Uh, harm to you and further erode your humanity away uh, in greater confinement all by design but that was really uh, painful uh, in 40 years imagine that having a to be a father uh, we can kind of lose sight of that and just think of the individual and not think oh he's a father and a husband and you know there's a a child who has been missing for the last 40 years her parent you know and had to go through all this uh, let's see the mental health really talk. We spent so much time talking about mental health on the program uh, and him talking about hey, now contrast Jay Smith, this white guy, he gets released. Now they've done a movie on him and all the rest. Harry Washington, he doesn't get a movie. Black guy going crazy and a part of his going crazy, him yelling niggers. Keep your racist garbage stop talking about my fan that's his going crazy 
where he's classified as a nut. That even reminded me uh, the Khalif Browder documentary uh, that Jay-Z did. They spent a lot of time talking about that mental health, doing the same things, having black people isolated, having them in uh, solitary confinement, knowing that this is going to take a toll on their mental health. They already know this. We're going to use language because we know that this is going to drive. It's designed to drive you insane where you might not recuperate. We already know this. We study this. We study the Negro. We study how to break the Negro. Doing the same thing, just more refined techniques. Um, but I thought that was extremely important. And and again, Mumia is a human being as well. He's not talking as though he's immune. Uh, the health deterioration and everything that he's gone through uh, to be there for this period and, and to for he himself to endure all of this and to still be cranking out and reporting and writing. It's uh, astonishing. Uh, let's see. the drugging I thought was important he talked about the Supreme Court uh, ruling where correctional facilities they're allowed to drug inmates wow I'm sure some of these people that's how they got here war on drugs especially this time period that's how they got here now we're going to get here and it's oh we got to give you some drugs so you'll settle down a bit give you some drugs and put you in front of the television (laughs) like wow and then complain that we got a recidivism uh, problem. You get all the what happens if you get addicted to whatever drugs they have you on while you're in prison and then you get out and you don't have access to those uh, those drugs anymore. What happens then? Uh, let's see. The same thing I said before in the languaging in the way that we talk about uh, racism, white supremacy, it seems like a lot of, of uh, languaging around conservatives. You hear a lot of that today. Conservative right wing uh, as though it's it's Donald Trump's fault. Uh, I guess at this time period, it would have been would that have been George Bush, I think. George H.W. Herbert Walker, I think, uh, for this this period, we'll blame it on him or blame it on uh, Reagan. That's just not understanding accurately white supremacy racism when he says the notes of a youthful law clerk of 1953. That's what I mean about name dropping. All of this. Uh, name dropping of white law clerks. I could see where this could be a means of appealing to white law students. Maybe they might be interested. White activists. Uh, The notes of a youthful law clerk of 1953 are the ruling opinions of America's highest court of today. The clerk of yesteryear is today's chief justice and the word South can be juxtaposed with North, West, East, or even court and this is him echoing when he started the chapter saying that the south doesn't like black people and that's not accurate at all it's individuals classified as white it's not even southwest east north it is the global system known universe Uh, we talk about that on such a regular basis how are you going to mention nelson mandela in this text which he already did system of white supremacy and then come back and say that in some manifestation this problem is about white people in the south gotta be that's why I said Dr. Welsing I started to have a much greater appreciation for people that if you're going to talk about racism doing so in an accurate manner it is very difficult to find people who are willing and able to do that willing and able Mumia Abu Jamal might not be able 
Not that he's not informed, but Noel Hanrahan might not allow him. She might not. She might not be willing to do those recordings. You know, if he talked about racism, white supremacy in a more blunt manner. I'll stop there. Uh, any other folks? Sections? Anything of significance stood out from the first or the second audio? Either either portion that we've read so far. No. Yes, Ira, you're a little, your volume is a little low if you could speak up. Okay, is this better? Yes, ma'am. All right. Um, you were talking about uh, the that invented uh, fear of black people in order to, you know, put them in greater confinement. It's like they, what I've thought about while I was waiting is there's fear, right, and uh, there's an acronym for it, false evidence appearing real. So for them, they create this false evidence of us and what we'll do to them and what we're capable of. And then, you know, of course, to maintain order their way, you know, they, they uh, punish black people, black men, you know, more harshly for this false evidence that they've imposed on themselves. But then we develop a fear and that's factual evidence appearing real because it is real. You know that there are people that, you know, if if they want you in jail, like with Momia, they will invent something and then put you in there. And then because people see uh, a person's, uh, you know, prosecution and therefore or, or hence their, um, you know, conviction, then everybody else is, is, has stress and anxiety and, and fear, you know, just going about their daily lives. Um, and then, like you said, just further uh, uh, putting more value um, on white lives and, and letting us know your life is not valuable because if you are murdered by someone non-white, black, or whatever, They'll they'll probably get you know be able to get paroled out eventually maybe you know um, as far as the mental health thing there's an interesting poem I heard on Michelle and DeGale Cello's album jeez uh, I can't think of it now uh, I think it's Cookie the anthology but she uh, has in one of the songs Hard Rock returns to prison from the hospital for the criminally insane, and this poem is by Etheridge Knight. And in the poem, he talks about how this prisoner um, dubbed Hard Rock in the poem is uh, made a, um, you know, like, in a, he's a shell of himself because he's been lobotomized. And everybody, you know, basically is commenting like, wow, this man really was, you know, a stone-cold killer, and now they've made him into, you know, as gentle as a caterpillar basically because of the, the, the um, dismembering of his brain. When I was in um, college for graphic design, um, my instructor at the, at the time, white woman from Poland, she mentioned to us that um, there's a certain pink that will drive you insane or any person insane, I should say, and that um, that was uh, basically um, played around with in prisons. And they had to, I guess eventually they decided that was not a good thing to do. I'm not sure what the manifestations was, but they're constantly playing with the brains of the imprisoned um, death row or not. 
And then I wanted to say, I hope I'm not taking too long. Uh, white people, Amy Goodman, I do watch Democracy Now! every now and then to get like general headlines. But I, I know she and many others probably adhere to um, Mr. Uh, you know, Abu Jamal's case because it's their way to say, hey, look, I'm not racist. I'm helping this guy on death row. You know, he's black. Look at me. Um, and then the last thing I also want to say is um, when white people want you out of prison, you get out. Um, what's her name? Centoria Brown. And I'm not saying she didn't deserve it. I did feel for her. But her, and I mean, she came to my mind first. I know there's others. And the guy in the book, they, they went through the extent of making a movie in order to create propaganda to aid, aid this man becoming free. So when white people want you out of prison, they'll get you out. And if they want you there, you'll, you'll stay there. And I will, in my turn for now, I'll wait for the end of the show for the books. Much obliged, uh, Irie. Let's see if any other folks have suggestions comments on live from death row Mia Abu Jamal uh, our debut session uh, any other comments suggestions questions folks want to share assuming folks are satisfied this time around uh, checking back myself make sure I didn't Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Retired firefighter. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, studying uh, his uh, uh, works uh, because he has been on your program uh, for a long period of time. And uh, I know about the uh, the case of the... Uh, enforcement official that was killed uh but i don't i don't have enough i'm not satisfied with the amount of details that i have and maybe also his uh his uh understandings of racism and white supremacy uh maybe that would be revealed uh through this text a little bit better about where his thoughts are on the subject, and because uh, I, otherwise I I hadn't really studied him directly, so yeah, looking forward to it. Much obliged, retired firefighter. I think that is the case with a number of folks where they had maybe heard his name uh, from time to time, but don't have like a lot of uh, intimate details uh, about his either his case or his life and times, what he was doing before he was in prison, all of that. So yeah, hopefully this will be a good chance for all of us to get a little bit more info on who this fella is and why he's been mentioned might be mentioned. Well, like I said, if they have that trial, Oh man, he'll be talked about a whole, whole lot more. Uh, any other folks, questions, suggestions, comments they want to share. We'll assume folks are good for now. 
Uh, we will be back next week. This book isn't really super long, so we shouldn't be on it too long. Definitely should take us into the new year, but I mean, before we get to Valentine's Day, we should be off on to something else. So hopefully we'll have fun, learn a lot, and be ready to roll 2020 with uh, a new book once we're all done with this one. Uh, we had suggestions for young adult literature. We just talked about this on the compensatory call-in. So glad to have uh, Ari with suggestions. Young eager reader think sixth grade if memory serves uh, where she loves to read she's reading the abomination the hate you give which we already read on the cows Uh, we want to give her something quality to cleanse her palate take it away Irie all right I think these will work the first one I don't have the author but uh, it is rabbit proof fence about two young girls kidnapped from their home uh, in uh, Australia, gives a perspective of racism, you know, in in, uh, in another continent, um, and their uh, adamant uh, attempt to uh, get back to their family, um, despite being thousands of miles away. The next book, um, and I'm suggesting this because I thought I heard you say she's 16, so I think she'll be able to uh, read this. Um, it is a random family. If she's younger than 16, then I wouldn't recommend it. But if she's 16 or older, Random Family by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. And this is basically about a white, this is a white woman reporter that um, follows a family in the Bronx. This is a, a true uh, accounting of this family in the Bronx who live uh, below the poverty line. They're subjected to violence, uh, drugs, police activity. Um, she follows them for 10 years and basically compiles their stories in this book. Um, and one of the people that she wrote about is pictured on the cover. And then the last book, um, The Best of Simple by Langston Hughes. And I really love this book. Uh, in middle school because it gave me reflections or or an insight on some of the things my grandmother would tell me about, um, you know, the world growing up um, post the, uh, you know, World War II and the Great Depression. So there's going to be mentions of that. Uh, It also has talks about racism. Um, And it was really, really funny. And, of course, it's it's Langston Hughes, and I think she might like that if she wants to read something that's um, lighthearted, give her a little bit of laugh and, um, you know, just expand her palate. Now, in my turn, good night, everybody. Thank you. Love it, love it, love it. I uh, hope I said sixth grade, uh, not 16. She's, uh, I think, memory is accurate, sixth grade grade so not quite 16 uh, I think 6th grade that would be like 11 maybe uh... okay crash random family please <laughs> oh okay we'll put that in the reserve we'll put that one in the hopper so a few years down the road we'll be ready to roll on that one as well but at least for right now 6th is that memory is that is memory accurate uh, Henry in Chicago if he's still with us 6th grade that's our, our young scholars reading age Might not be. Might not be with us. It's in the archives, though. We went over it. And I think it's uh, sixth grade. 
sixth grade. But if any other folks uh, have literature, uh, books that are constructive, uh, hopefully they can be written by a black author too. That would be great. Uh, but featuring some black people, constructive presentation uh, of black people and something that would help motivate, encourage uh, a young black scholar, young black boy, young black girl to keep up reading. Let us know. Uh, you can share on the compensatory call in or what have you. Anyway, we'll be here tomorrow. Uh, workplace racism, uh, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and then on Saturday, compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And we'll also be here Monday. Uh, Clifford Thompson. He's a black male. Uh, he wrote the book what it is uh which is about uh trump winning the 2016 election he went out to interview uh white men exclusively to figure out why they were supporting trump so he could better understand racism and the so-called country but he should be here on monday his book is an interesting read me i'm such a dunce he was just here in seattle he was at the exact same bookstore that azure savage was at and i think within a matter of days like if i had just uh, I did look at the calendar. I thought if I had maybe spent an extra minute or two looking at the calendar, I would have saw his name and I could have went right back and saw Clifford Thompson. But no matter, he'll be here on Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific black male. Uh, you can check out. I think we did play an audio segment about his book not too long ago. Uh, what it is, is the title of it. It is. Uh, oh, I forgot the cowbell, but that'll be for money. Yeah. Clifford Thompson cowbell. Woo. Anywho, uh, that'll do it for today. Live from Death Row will be back next Thursday. Much obliged for everyone's participation. I hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. You hear what they're doing to the prisoners. Drug them with the TV. And then we drug them with actual narcotics. And then do all that cavity searching and such in the name of, oh, we, we want to promote sobriety. We, we don't want you sneaking in any crack cocaine. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger, or driver. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. Uh, in addition to being sober and buckled in, if you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, just doing everything we can to try to be as safe as we can under extraordinarily dangerous conditions. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm.
Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.